Blank check with Griffin and David. Blank check with Griffin and David. Don't know what to say or to expect. All you need to know is that the name of the show is Blank Check. Yeah, check the podcast. Why, my Uncle Thumper had a problem with his podcast, and he had to take these big pills and drink lots of water. Not prostate, you idiot. Podcast. Griffin, that's very confusing. You were saying podcast as well? I don't even know what that was. I can't believe you picked that. Why didn't no, you pick the, the piano on the head? The bit is... That Eddie Valiant says, check the probate, and then he right, starts talking right. about probates, but the specifics around what he's saying make it clear that he thinks it's a prostate. And then Eddie Valiant right. says, not, not probate, prostate, not prostate, you idiot, probate. He restates the word. Right. But you were saying, well, look, look, let's just move along. Look, this movie has several iconic lines, but they do not work particularly well within this stupid format that we have landed on over five years. I'm not Toon bad. killed his brother. I just dropped a podcast on his head. Yeah, I'm saying none of these are real good. I think dropped <laughs> a podcast on his good. head is funny. <laughs> I'd like to drop a podcast on your head. What do you see in the guy? He makes me podcast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's not anything. That's what I'm saying. These things don't sound like anything. At least the prostate probate thing. It's already I'm P not- words. I'm not Bravo, bad. Bravo, I was just I was just recorded that way. You could try and like do a Jessica Rabbit like a spin David, on her iconic line. That's far too long of a walk. I would never take a walk <laughs> that long for a bit. Right. Okay. Having well, to replace multiple words? Unbelievable. Introduce I, the show, I mean, Griffin. It is I, I just think I just want to quickly clarify. I, I am in fact not bad. You I are someone who'll take a long way. walk. And I'll take a look. Oh, yeah, right. And you are, yes, yeah. Yeah. And that is what I see in Roger Rabbit, is that he makes me podcast. Uh, Hello, everybody. Uh, My name is Griffin Newman. I'm David Sims. That time you were right on cue. I I snapped, I pointed, you said your name. So you're going to call me out for not being on cue, and then you're going to call me out for being on cue? I That's got, how you're going to kick it off? No, I was celebrating. I was saying, man, yeah. look at the, the Griffin Newman school of picking up cues is working already. Yeah. Uh-huh. This is a podcast called Blank Check with Griffin and David. It's about filmographies, directors who have massive success early on in their careers are given a series of blank checks to make whatever crazy passion products they want. And sometimes those checks clear and sometimes they bounce, baby. Very nice. I'm going to run my shitty Roger Rabbit impression into the ground. I think your Roger Rabbit is fine. I think it's pretty think good. It's fine. Yeah. I think it's fine. Uh, this is a main series on the films of Robert Zemeckis. It is not called Who Potted Roger Cast Bit, which a lot of people wanted. Mm. No, that was stupid. It's called Podcast Away because he made a movie clean. called Cast Away. It's clean. Right. It Very has cast clean. in the right. title. Uh, right. But today we are talking about Who Framed Roger Rabbit, uh, the movie that we were sort of arguing in our Back to the Future episode. We've covered filmmakers who have one hit that's so big, they're kind of going to get a blank check for the rest of their mm. lives. Zemeckis is in that category where it's like he did a couple in a row that were so big that it's never yeah. getting revoked. He has three of the movie we're talking about, like, you yeah. know, right, Back to the Future, Roger Rabbit and Forrest Gump. But also, yeah. right, the back to back of Back to the Future and Robert Rat- Roger Rabbit is is crazy. One of the only things I could equate it to 
is Inception after Dark Knight. Right. Right, where right. people were like, oh, and now Warner Brothers lets him do whatever fucking thing he wants until he comes back to do another Batman movie. And then when that was a blockbuster on its own, people were like, oh, this guy's never getting the checkbook taken away. I also contend the fact that Back to the Future 2 was a well-regarded sequel, just even strengthened that even more. And then he wins a fucking Oscar and uh, just does wild shit for the rest of his career. But this one, uh, this is one of those movies that, that just uh, is like a miracle. It is. It is a miracle. And also, it couldn't happen like five years before or after no. it came out. Like five years before, the, the, technic, the tech isn't there. Five years after, Disney's like, oh, no way. This is too weird. I'm going to pull our guests into the conversation before introducing them because that's what I like Please. to do. But yeah. one of our two guests was saying... That often when he has to do things to prepare for podcasts, it feels like homework and how much this was the antithesis of homework. That was me. What? <laughs> I said that. I, uh, yeah, I, I, I definitely, you know, it, it, anytime you remember me, especially my own podcast, but anytime you're guessing on something and it's like, hey, you got to listen to this album, read this book, watch this movie, etc. It always is like a little bit of, of, okay, well, I have to do this obligation, which is fine, um, whether you enjoy it or not. But here, just like minutes in, I was yeah. like, this is fucking great. I had been probably two decades. Right. Probably right. probably 20 years since I'd seen this wow. movie, which I've seen maybe right. twice before. And just rewatching it, I was like, man, this is I, it's unbelievable how dazzling this is to look at and how compelling it is as a story and how great the performances are all around. Just a fucking just a, I, was, I was like, this is fucking great. I'm having the time of my life. Our, our other guest had a shocked face at our first guest saying he'd only maybe seen it twice before. Have you seen this film a lot more often? I'm, I'm going to drag you into speaking before we introduce you. Yes. First of all, I don't like homework. I've never liked homework. Hey, in the and words of Blink-182, work sucks. I know. <laughs> so because of that, I consider this homework. I didn't watch it. Uh, it's going to be a rough episode. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> no, of course I watched it. I yeah. love the movie. I've watched it plenty of times. I, I I actually, the last time I watched it before I watched it for, for this podcast was only a few weeks back. I, I oh, wow. just, it was on, wow. it was, I think it was either on TV or I just had it, but Nick, like you, I think up just a few years ago, I hadn't seen it for like 10 years or so. It was like a long stretch since I had seen it. And then when I watched it, I was like, oh, this is, this is just one of the top to me. I mean, is this saying too much already? Like a top 25 movie of all time. I love it. I mean, David, you previously said it's your pick for the best film of 1987. David keeps very detailed spreadsheets. Wow. Of every year. 88. Yeah. Oh, idiot. I'm sorry. Yeah. He keeps very detailed spreadsheets of every year and what he mm -hmm. would nominate in every category at the Oscars for every year based on what he's seen. So that's not like wow. an off the top of the head. I guess that would be my favorite movie. It's like a sick thing that I do, to be clear. Right. I know that's not like, you know, I know that's aberrant behavior, but I do. And it is my number one of 1988. And I think it's Zemeckis' best film. And I think it would be most people's best film if they made something like this. It's yeah. just one of those things where you're like, this is magic. Like, yeah, no. Yeah. You know, no one strikes twice on something this sort of 
accomplished and ambitious and like just like purely entertaining. It's staggering. It's so daring. And just the achievement alone makes me wonder a little why it it feels maybe this is just my sense as someone who's less of a of a movie. I'd say the the least a movie buff of the four of us. Mm, it it sure. feels wow. like it It kind of fell out of the collective consciousness a little bit. Am I wrong about that? I feel like I don't see Who Framed Roger Rabbit referenced as much as maybe some other films of the era. I have a, I have a couple of thoughts in regards to this, but now, now I feel like I can finally introduce you guys, ladies and gentlemen, from the Doughboys podcast, <laughs> Platinum Play Club level guest, Nick Weiger. Wow. Mitch, Mike, Mitch Mitchell. <laughs> I don't get platinum. I'm just I'm just a regular. I said guests. We're both, platinum play club level guests. Oh, the two of you. The title applied to both of you. All right, fair enough. Uh, I you know we also you're we, wrong about Mitch. Well, <laughs> uh, we we plan these episodes far in advance. We have miniseries planned out far in advance. We when we knew we were doing Zemeckis and we knew we were going to be recording from home and thus doing more Skype episodes and long distance guests, we reached out to you guys immediately and said yes. like take your pick of any Zemeckis movie on the list. And I feel like both of you came back with Roger Rabbit as a consensus pretty quickly. And I'll say, Mitch, I've been like tempted to watch this movie so many times over the last six months because so many times Mm. it has felt like that would really hit the spot right now. But I've sort Mm. of been holding off and edging, waiting for maximum impact. (laughs) (laughs) I I wanted to make, I wanted Roger Rabbit to get me there, if you know what I'm saying. (laughs) Um, but it is just kind of such a miraculous film. And in the sort of like weeks and months leading up to this, not watching the movie, I was sort of doing a lot of digging around the context of this film because David and I are kind of sort of context. And uh, I feel like there are a bunch of weird X factors that resulted in this movie turning out as well as it did that could not be replicated. As David said, five years earlier, five years later, not just the technology, right. but the circumstances of Hollywood at the time. The, the like daring of it. Yeah. Now, right. like mm. imagine Disney allowing something like this through the, the net now, like they never would. That's well, the thing. even, even, I mean, and your time frame was so specific and I think, you know, correctly so, because, you know, once, once a little mermaid and, and beauty and the beast are on the yes. scene, like the same thing, there's no way they're going to, they're going to go back to this. Wigs, that's the cornerstone of my argument, is that Little Mermaid's the following year, yep. and that wow. is the last time, like, at, once they've reestablished that, yeah, there's no need for them to take this sort of risk ever again. And it's like the 1980s were that period where Disney was, like, teetering on the edge, maybe going under. There was that yep. fear of, like... Much like the Rescuers. Much like the Rescuers, they were on the verge Sorry. of going <laughs> under. No, thank <laughs> Sorry. you. Thank you, Nick. I'm sorry, everyone. Uh, but I feel like people talk about that Disney wasn't viewed as a legitimate studio. Their animation department was like a shell of what it previously was. And, it, you know, I think there was this thought that like Disney might only be uh, an experiential company. It might just be the theme parks. They might not really be an entertainment company anymore. And the thing that's keeping them afloat at this point, just to give you an idea mm-hmm. of where Disney is, like its biggest hit in the 80s before this Splash. So on the family side is what? Like Tron? Like Fox and the Hound? Mm. Like it's really like they had nothing. Right. These are you're talking their biggest hits are movies that underperformed. 
Right. And then yeah. like on the touchstone yeah. side, on their grown up side, they had actually had hits. They'd had like the color of money and like good morning Vietnam, like movies yeah. you don't realize were Disney movies, like because they were touchstone. Right. Eisner and Katzenberg come in. They come from Paramount. And their first thing is sort of like, let's make Disney capable of making adult films because that's right. how what we know how to make. And they like sign Bette Midler to like a four movie deal. And they have like a run of Bette Midler comedies that people forget were very successful. He always talks about like Splash. Bette Midler saved Disney. Splash right. saved Disney. There are these movies they talk about that saved Disney, but they were not really Disney movies. And and Splash, I feel like, is the most indicative of that, where it was like it got rejected everywhere else in town. People thought it was low rent, that it was a Disney movie, that it was a sitcom star, that it was directed by a different sitcom star. And then it was this big breakout hit. But still, like Disney as like a family entertainment brand was not really in a great position. It's in a terrible position. Like, yeah. as you say, next year they have Little Mermaid. They also have Honey, I Shrunk the Kids the next year. Yeah. So I feel like those two things are really like putting the Disney stakes back, but not not in 1988. Was Dick Tracy Disney? Yes, but that's 91 or 90. Okay. Uh, Dick Tracy, is it Disney? Yes, absolutely Disney. Huh, interesting. It was, oh yeah, it was a touchstone. Yeah, 1990. Yes. Yeah, because okay. that was a big Katzenberg, like, we're going to beat Batman they had the ride ready to go. They had sequels lined up. Like he right. was so confident that was going to be their big superhero franchise. Um, I love Dick Tracy. I mean, I'm sorry for for going on this tangent, but I love Dick Tracy. But the as a kid, uh, the hardest I, I, I ever laughed as a kid, maybe in my entire life, we were there was a drive-in movie theater. We we're driving down in Lakewood, California, and the, it was it was a showing a double feature of Honey I Shrunk the Kids and uh, Dick Tracy. And some mischievous teen had rearranged the marquee so it said, Honey, I Shrunk Tracy's Dick. I laughed so hard. I mean, that is really good. It was very funny. (laughs) Uh, uh, Wayne Wang, the great uh, uh, Chinese-American filmmaker, uh, his debut film was called uh, Chan is Missing. What am I talking about? Uh, Joy Luck Club. Yes, Chan is yes. missing. Yes. Uh, and my father has a similar marquee story that is someone rearranged it to say, uh, Wayne Chang's Wang is missing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's good. <laughs> That's the problem with digital marquees. You can't rearrange the letters. There's no anagram yeah. fun to be had. Nightmare for Bart Simpson. Right. <laughs> yeah. Absolute nightmare. I just watched On the Waterfront for the first time and I was surprised. Wow. I was surprised by how much the bad guys look like Dick Tracy villains. They all look like like so many of those guys are like are so monstrous looking. They look like like flat top or like whatever. No face. They look like these. They look like the fucked up monster creations in the Dick Tracy (laughs) movies, which I loved. I I, I feel like there was some sort of I I feel like it could have been a big. It could have been a big superhero hit because I feel like kids did. But then it was like weirdly adult that movie. Right. Wasn't there like an issue with like. it's too grown up that movie. It was it was a hit. Like it did well. Yeah. I guess it didn't do well enough to And also there's a whole weird thing where like Warren Beatty owns it and right. is mm. is very very fussy about do, it. But do like, you guys know about the Dick Tracy TV yeah. special? Do you Just know about yes. the TV special? Yes. Yes. Like yes. the kind oh, of thing yeah. you'd love. Do you know about this, Mitch? 
Not as well, but I think I've heard of it. But please do t- do 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 tell me very quickly for our listeners. Warren Beatty like had the rights to Dick Tracy personally, not Disney. Beatty is the one who controlled them, and there was some sort of stipulation that the rights would revert back to whoever the publisher is uh, if he stopped being in development on further Dick Tracy movies. So Warren mm. Beatty has spent like the last thirty years claiming that he's. A months away from making a Dick Tracy too, like he always claims like I'm about to do it, and he keeps on getting called into court, and they keep on trying to argue, and he'll hold up drawings and be like, "Look, I I wrote Dick Tracy too on a napkin. I'm making it," and it finally hit some point where they were like, "You have to pull the trigger on something." So he made a TV special that aired one time at like 3 a.m unannounced on Turner Classic Movies that was Leonard Maltin interviewing Warren Beatty in character as Dick Tracy about the history of Dick Tracy. (laughs) But in order to hide the fact that he's now 30 years older than he already was too old to play the character of the original movie, he's in shadows (laughs) the entire time. So it's just, you cannot see his face. It's Warren Beatty in complete shadows in a yellow trench coat. No, you can see his face, but they are. It was also shot by Chivo Griff. Yes, shot it's by shot Emmanuel by Emmanuel Lubeski. Lubeski. It's like the most overqualified. Academy Award winning, right? Yes, That's, a cinematographer. I, I've I've seen this special, and I believe you sent the special to me, most likely, if, if, I, if I had to guess. <laughs> it's so wild. It's uh, demented. It ends with Dick Tracy receiving a phone call from the police on his like Dick Tracy watch and being like, I got to go. And Leonard Maltin being like, oh, and then he leaves. Dear God. It's really weird. I, do you know what's here's what's crazy to me? That, so Dick Tracy and Little Mermaid both to me feel much older than Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Roger Who Framed Roger Rabbit feels like a newer. I mean, like there's so much to say about it just even in the opening cartoon how amazingly cool the opening short is of with yes. uh with roger what is the what's the baby's name baby uh baby herman. sherman is it herman herman, herman. herman. Right. Baby sorry herman. sorry sorry him watching uh, that like the that cartoon looks fantastic mm-hmm. it looks it looks amazing and it looks uh, to me it looks better than like any of the animation of Little Mermaid. I'm sorry. Uh, no, <laughs> absolutely. Think, absolutely. That's true. The Little yeah. Mermaid, I, I I love the Little Mermaid, um, but it looks really chintzy compared to like even Aladdin or Beauty and the Beast or whatever, because yeah. like they didn't have the money like or and it wasn't like a guaranteed thing when they were making it. I, I'll, yeah. I'll dig into the opening with some context, but um, in, in the shortest version of it is the book comes out in 1981. The book is incredibly weird. Uh, it's called movie, Who Censored yes. Who Censored Roger Rabbit, right? And it's it's a lot more meta in like a, a Deadpool kind of way than this is sort of knowing and playing with the tropes. Like, is it more of like a gumshoe novel? Like it's written like a sort of like from the perspective of like you know I don't know you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, but I think it's also less of a sort of like noir pastiche. It's a little more like harder edged. It's more violent, it's more sexual. I know there's a thing in the book where like the characters, the cartoon characters when they speak, they have thought bubbles, speech mm. bubbles above their head and then they use the speech bubbles as weapons. Yeah, they're not because they're not cartoon characters. They're like comic characters, right? In the book, right? right? right. And and I and then and there's also I, like Roger Rabbit gets the the inciting incident is Roger Rabbit himself gets murdered 
at least yes. from what yes. I read about it. So it's it's yes. just it's got some it's one of those things where they made some some huge changes in the adaptation. This is a this is a very loose adaptation, at, uh, undoubtedly for the better. Yeah, it feels uh, yes. like very much a thing where Disney just kind of went like, oh, fuck, that's a good idea. We should pay right. this guy for this idea and then write an original movie based on this idea. You said it's more it's more Deadpool like. I, I think, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I think it's a little more like sort of like edge lordy kind of shock factor. Yeah. So so Roger's like, Eddie, my balls, my balls are itchy. <laughs> I don't know there, what Deadpool. There's a scene where Eddie pegs Roger and then people write think pieces <laughs> saying like, is is this progressive or are they just going for shock? Like, is this woke or? Um, but the book also like wasn't very, I think, popular or successful. It really was one of those things like Galaxy Quest is one of these things where like someone wrote the script that is like actor ends up on a spaceship and DreamWorks got sent it and they were like, this script is terrible, but this idea is so good. We will pay this person $250,000 to fuck off. And then they just hired new writers and said, like, don't even read it. Here's the premise. Write a movie based on this premise. And mm. Roger Rabbit feels like it was that. But it was the previous head of Warner Brothers in 1981 who buys it right after the publication because they're in such weird, a weird transitional state. This is Disney, not Warner Brothers. Disney. I'm sorry. And they're looking for, like, what could be a new blockbuster? What could be a big franchise? Animation's faltering. Live action's faltering. This could be both in one hit. Uh, Zemeckis wants to do this project as early as 1982. But they go, like, you're a flop master. No way we're letting you near this. You're, like, three strikes in a row. I want to hold your hand. Right, he made two bars. They would count 1941 against him because they were, like, you wrote the only unsuccessful Spielberg movie. Everything you touch wow. turns to shit. Right. So he makes Romancing the Stone in order to prove that he can make a hit, his first movie that he doesn't write. Then off of that, he finally gets to make his passion project, Back to the Future. And then he goes back and is like, come on, come on. But you know, he was the second choice, right? Who's the first choice? Terry Gilliam. Wow. 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 Which, which, which is, makes sense because yeah. he was the Monty Python guy combined with like, he can do comedy, he can do like animation, right? Like, I get why they thought about him. And Time Bandits was like a straight up mainstream hit. Right. right. I, don't think, I, don't, I don't think I would like the Terry Gilliam Roger. I, I, I mean, do not either. I'm glad we got the Zemeckis one. A big foot would kill Judge Doom or something. <laughs> Wait, it. Say, There's more to Gilliam's filmography than Monty Python shorts. <laughs> yeah, I know there is. Oh, I can't make the Not damn joke, Wagger. Well, I, I can't I make think... a Bigfoot joke. I liked it. <laughs> I enjoyed the Bigfoot joke. Yeah, um, the thing about Gilliam is uh, uh, not only does he turn it down, he tur- he said he turned it down because he thought it would just be too hard. Yeah. Like, and he later said, like, I was just being lazy. Like, I never should have turned that movie down. It does feel, I mean, watching it, it feels extremely hard. E- even the even the animated short, which we touched on, it's just like it uses so much for, for a traditional hand-drawn cell animated short. Like, there's so much, like, shifts of perspective and, you know, 3D rotation shit that I'm just like, God, the amount of craft to be able to execute this and make this look as good as it is. It, it's just it's it's staggering. That's what yeah. I want to get into because there's kind of a mini blank check within this blank check of a movie which is just that opening. Because you have the other main author of this movie is Richard Williams who was the animation director. 
Got it. And has his own sort of weird uh, filmography. But um, uh, Eisenberg, uh, I'm sorry, Eisner and Katzenberg have taken over. Zemeckis comes back being a newly minted, like, hot director, wants to do it. And in retrospect, it's like, yeah, there, it feels like there are few people who would have had the exact right combination of skill sets to pull this off. It is so complicated that, like, I don't blame Gilliam for saying he's too lazy to do it because <laughs> few people would be capable of taking, keeping mindful of the math of this movie on a technical level while also keeping your eye on the story and the performances. Like, you have to have this weird kind of Zemeckisy, like Rube Goldberg brain which clearly exists in his storytelling style, but also as the years go on, it becomes more and more obsessed with like technical wizardry. Um, you need to be someone who is excited enough about that, that you can keep track of that. Because every one of these sequences, it's this thing that Zemeckis does, which is like, do the effect that's four times more difficult yes. and call as little attention to itself as possible so that it right. just sells to people the reality of well, this is so natural, it must be real. Yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, like there there's a version of this with a bunch of locked off shots and, uh, you know, and, and, and it, where it's just like, oh, okay, this is, it's kind of easy to see how they executed this. And the, in, 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 in contrast, the way they pulled this off, it's just like the camera's in motion so much. There's so much action overlapping, uh, you know, layered between the, the, the live action and the animation. It's just... It, every every shot looks like a challenge. It's long takes. It's complicated blocking. It's like he does not compromise his shooting style at all. He's still having this like constantly moving camera. And as you said, there's this constant like passing back and forth of objects, animated characters interacting with live action, live action interacting with animation, like right. several times back and forth within any scene. Yeah, a, li a live action character holding an animated uh, tool or or weapon, and vice versa. I mean that that happens a lot, and it's just it's just the degree of difficulty. All this, it's it's really something. How many movies from the eighties are you like? I don't know how they did this, or like you know, yeah, I, like you're, you're still yeah. <laughs> that transition of the of the fridge when the fridge oh. falls on Roger Rabbit and they open the fridge and 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 then Baby Herman or yeah. Sherman Baby Herman walks off set. And it uh, that to me, I mean, like that opening sequence, like I said, the, the cartoon is amazing. But then when they segue into the live action stuff, it just is it's mind blowing. It's so it's so good. It's like a Wizard of Oz moment. It's still one of those things mm -hmm. where it's like people still believe erroneously that Wizard of Oz was the first movie in color because it lands that transition so impactfully that it yeah. feels like this must have been the first time anyone did it, right? Because it feels like a revolution. And people had done animation, live-action mashups before. It's gone on back to, like, Gertie the Dinosaur. Like, the first animated <laughs> character ever, Windsor McKay would, like, screen things where he interacted with Gertie. Wags, what, you, were, you were at the premiere for that, weren't you, Wagger? <laughs> All right. <laughs> Two years older than you. The same generation. <laughs> Kind of Gertie the Dinosaur lunchbox. Yeah. <laughs> you worked on the Gertie the Dinosaur video game, right? <laughs> it was I Sopranos, wish. Gertie the Dinosaur. <laughs> Hand-cranked video games. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
ColecoVision? What's an early video? Is ColecoVision early enough, Wire? Yeah, Coleco's a pretty good pull. I mean, television, same sort of generation. It was all, all of that, uh, that Atari, that pre-Nintendo era. It's all kind of the same mm. same era. Yeah, I thought it was on a, a, a Nickelodeon RPG system. <laughs> <laughs> Where you had to, as David said, crank in different directions based on which way you want the character to move. <laughs> When Eisner and Katzenberg come on, they're like, well, first of all, our animation department is almost insolvent. And they knew they mm. wanted to bring Disney animation back to its like former luster, but that was going to take many years. Uh, Little Mermaid was in development for so long. There's so many pieces. Animation just takes so long. They are at this point doing the Great Mouse Detective, right? Which is sort of yes. like the first effort at bringing things back. But that one doesn't totally hit. Um, no, no. This was like first and foremost for them. They were like, this is a movie that allows us to keep our animation studio open. We need to give them something to work on. We want to take some more time to figure out what our next big animated movie is going to be. But we can start this like now. And it gives a reason to keep paying the rent, to keep the lights on on these studios, to keep these people under our employment. Um, I think it also was like for Katzenberg and Eisner a way to sort of like reestablish the Disney brand. It was something so tied into like the history of animation and legacy and also gives them like a new character. Like Roger Rabbit was sort of the first successful new character Disney had had in a long time. Do kids yeah. like Roger Rabbit? They He's should. He's kind of weird. I mean, he do, rules. Do you mean, do you mean the compare. movie or the character? The character. Like, do our kids into the character of Roger Rabbit, who's kind of like, I don't know how, how to describe Roger Rabbit. I mean, he's funny. He's a, he's annoying. He's very he's kind annoying. of annoying, right? Like that, which I sort of appreciate about him. But I think as a kid, I was like, why does anyone put up with this guy? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's kind of the the greatness of the character in the context right. of this narrative, which is that you get why Bob Hoskins character is so fucking annoyed with this <laughs> right? rabbit. Like you completely relate to him. And, and it's not like, hey, that's there's a version of this movie where where Bob Hoskins feels like the the, the adult who can't have any fun. Yeah. And it's just which he is at some the level. Scold. But it, yeah, no, but, exactly. No, but you're right. You're right. I have I have a take on what. Bob Hoskins character is supposed to be in this. And I don't know if I should save it for later if you want to hear it now. No, no, let's do it now. now. Yeah. Yeah. My take on Bob Hoskins character is that he is a person who is, who is rejected by Hollywood. So he, his, so his, so, I mean, that's, that's not that deep, right? A lot of people probably think this, but no, 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 but I, I I get where you're going with this. Right. If, if this is a movie about the industry, which it is, is, right? Yeah, it's a movie about the industry. This this is a guy who doesn't like to laugh anymore. So he's like a jaded person who works in the industry. And then at the end of the movie, he basically learns how to like laugh again. He does the big performance that saves the day and he kisses Roger on the lips. And that's basically him like not giving up on that town, not giving up on that dream, basically, is kind of the way I see it. Perfect. Yes, I totally agree. Nailed it. It's the thing that happens to people who want to go in the entertainment industry is either yeah. you want to do that because you're a monster who is looking for power or because you love stuff like you're yeah. like, I love movies and TV shows and performing. I'd love to do that. To, to be clear, the three of you are monsters looking for power. Absolutely. Right? That's, that's okay. okay. Right. Power hungry <laughs> monsters. <laughs> Weiger and I definitely have a Roger Rabbit, Eddie Valiant relationship. <laughs> <laughs> We're we're at once both grumpy and annoying. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I remember I came over and you hid me in your sink one time, Wags. Your <laughs> <laughs> song's Benny the Cab? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Roger is just defined by like the, the handcuffed gag, his best gag, right? Where yeah. he's like, you could have done that any time. And Roger's like, no, only when it was funny. And they're like, the, fu- the best right. line. It's the best, best line, line in the movie. It, it gets me so, so every single time. Like, I'm like, that, that, it, that kind of like, perfect screenwriting that gives you a little flutter where you're like, Oh, that's, that's, that's the character. Like I, I, I I get everything that's charming and annoying about this. Well, I think the other interesting thing about Roger is that he's the dilemma. Like in this movie, he is positioned as he is the conflict. His existence is the conflict. His proximity to Eddie in all scenes is the conflict. So the character has to be annoying in a way that like these classical kind of animated comedy characters like Mickey and Donald and Goofy and Bugs and Daffy and Porky, whoever, aren't. Where it's like you have these archetypes of like the cool, calm, collected, in charge, like, you know, run circles around everyone kind of like Mickey Bugs thing. You have the put upon like irascible, low status, fighting for respect. Daffy Donald thing and then Goofy and Porky fall into that thing of like well-intentioned but always kind of like struggling to stay one step ahead and Roger's actually like an impediment to most people around him like he makes things worse is he also like and I feel bad saying this but is he a cuck like is he into that like I feel like it kind of is brushing up against that with the whole Jessica Rabbit thing where like he wants the photos wow. and he's upset, but then he's making, you know, is there like a whole other layer? Like the Roger Jessica dynamic is very, I hadn't thought about it and that way until this rewatch. Um, I'll let, I'll let Nick answer this. Nick. All right. <laughs> <laughs> he, I mean, he is like, you know, I, I don't think he revels in being humiliated, which, which no, to me, like, sure, it, it which seems guess, like he, right. It seems like he is he is genuinely you know distraught by mm-hmm. the the allegations of infidelity. Um, so I, I yeah I, I don't know, but but maybe maybe that's maybe that's what's going on there. It's just he kind of gives her a break, and you're like, well, he's forgiving. He loves her. He you know he yeah. trusts her. Then that that's the 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 bright read on it. They just have their their dynamic is slightly underexplored in the movie, and I was sure. I was thinking about yeah. it more this time around. But also, Jessica always talks about him as if he's an alpha. I mean, I know that's sort yes, of one of the running true. jokes right. of the movie, but she always makes it seem like a like you will not believe how much of a man he is, and b like he's kind of an innocent. I have to get involved in these things to keep him clean. You know? Yeah, I agree with that. I. I it is it is that sort of thing of the to me he is just that sort of guy who is respected for how good he is you know what I mean when when Betty Boop is like she's so lucky to be with Roger you know that right. kind of joke that this that we just seen this beautiful woman and and well this beautiful cartoon woman and uh and she's she's lucky to be with Roger and and I think that's I think it's going on like that sort of show business aspect of like someone who is like a like a Bob Hoskins or something like yes. a guy who right who uh, who's who 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 you would be really attracted to just because of their talent or something. But also, especially in comedy, like how many wildly successful people in comedy do we know who like d- don't know how to tie their shoes? Sure, <laughs> you know, <laughs> sure, right. right. 
<laughs> who can't make pasta. That's what I always say. Right. Uh, David's go-to is is comedy boys who can't make pasta. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, I legitimately worked with someone, uh, a very well-known, very extremely talented comic who I watched them backstage uh, have their manager assist them putting their belt on. Right. Like it was, it, it's, it's, and it's kind of like, you know, well, it, it is. Just to let everybody know it was me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that archetype definitely exists. Um, I, yeah, I, and I guess Roger Rabbit kind of is that. He does seem like someone where it's like, well, how can you function? Really, all you know how to do is perform. And we even we, when he's allowed to just sort of like be himself, yeah. like in mm-hmm. that bar scene, he's still just like on. He's still right. just performing. There's no yeah. distance between him, the, his on-screen persona and who he is in the reality of this world. And he's kind yeah. of a savant. I mean, he has no yes. strategy. He has no impulse control. I mean, it's one of my favorite bits in the entire movie is the... Uh, a shave and a haircut two bits thing where it's just yeah. like he is so beholden to comedy and that he literally was like created to do comedy that it's the oh, yes. only impulse he has at all times. One, one one of my favorite moments in the movie is when he's when he's watching Goofy and he's like Goofy he, he does it better I don't know the exact line but he takes a hit better than anyone or whatever oh he says. Oh my god yeah. I love that scene I love him watching right. Goofy in admiration and yeah, all. He has a reverence for, which it's, I mean, that's so cool. And it is such a thing that you see or whatever, like, uh, you know, like real comedians love other comedians and, 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 and admire them. And, and, and that part, just that, those little aspects of the movie are so every, I mean, all the little details in the movie are, are yes. so amazing. Yeah. And, it, and it's, and I mean, and it's also, we haven't touched on it, but it's kind of an allegory for race in America. And the tunes basically are, are, non-white yeah represent non-white people um there's well, a lot of stuff like yes, that it's a ghetto there's a second class citizen thing and yes. also the movie is so overtly about like capitalism and like capitalism sure. uh you know leading to the decline of like public trusts and services yeah. within america what we sacrificed the whole red car thing is what happened i mean yeah the movie's plot is basically like chinatown yes and like Right. That, that That's all real. Like the, the auto companies and the tire companies like bought L.A.'s red car company and put it out of business. Like they like that's a real thing that happened in the 30s and 40s. And, and it really was. There was a point, you know, because it's a joke in the movie where Eddie's like, it's like, why? Well, who needs a car right, in L.A.? We get the freeway. Best, take, we get, yeah, right. Yeah. You know, we get the best public transit system in the world. And it's like there was there was true at some point. They were like L.A. had a renowned public transit system and trolley system that was completely dismantled. Um, and uh, and and they also reference when they're talking about building the freeway, which I was on this rewatch. I was I didn't realize that the freeway reveal was like his villain monologue at the end of the film. Um, I th- I thought that came earlier on, but I was like, oh, this doesn't this doesn't happen until like the last ten minutes where where yeah, we get we right. get his true motivation. But so much of whether so much of like what he says is like gri- like a grim reflection of what reality ended up being, which is like no one will even remember that neighborhood when they're driving through it at at, at, a, at you know sixty five miles per hour, you know, whatever right. that line is. Right, yeah. it's the destruction yep. of like Los Angeles as a town in exchange for we'll be able to build so many shops. Yes. You'll be able to get anywhere within 15 minutes. It's it's crazy that the the, the this movie filled with car, like with Mickey and and Daffy and Donald and all these cartoon characters has like such a heavy message like that, like Chinatown has. But 
this one even hits closer to home because I think it is like the number one problem with LA is, is, right. is the transportation system and, 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 and how, how much traffic there is. So it's just so crazy that there's this heavy thing at this, this it's basically just like this plot device, but it's, it's real. And, 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 and also there's a thing with Betty Boop. I was just thinking of this when she's, when she's the <sighs> a waitress scene it, in the movie. And it's yeah, it's, it's, that's, that's the equivalent. It, it's it's, yeah. it's the it's the equivalent of of silent movie stars basically right yes and that's I mean it's so fantastic uh, that scene moves me to tears I was uh, choked up watching it last night as I have been before and it's not just that I like Betty Boop and like the and the the implications that you're talking about but like it's that she's the only tune that Eddie is nice to like Eddie yeah. is so hostile especially in the first half of the movie and he's really sweet to her. In a way that almost suggests, like, did they have something going on? Like, you know, there's this right. kind of like <laughs> this kind of like old flame thing, ha- and like it's such a touching little moment. It is his line delivery on "You still got it, Betty" is just like <sighs> unreal. I mean, we have so to talk about talk Hoskins. About I mean, yeah. it's, David, by, it's by one the way, of my David, favorite performances. Yes, yes, go he's ahead. fantastic. David, you're, you're really you're really trying to figure out the DNA of this movie, and in, in, uh, especially when it comes to the all oh, the fucking. I know. <laughs> I, I'm sorry that I've now brought it up twice. I, I I don't know if it, but you know what I mean, right? Like, there's it's yeah. not a flirtatious no, yes. energy exactly, but there's like a, a warm oh. sort of relationship but, there. But also, it rewatching it last night, like this was one of my most rented movies as a child. I feel like this was one of my default. If I'm at the video store, my parents are like, "Hurry up!" and I couldn't pick something i would Mm. always just reach for this and be like i'll still enjoy roger rabbit for the 12th time but i i don't think i'd seen it maybe five or six years and uh just watching it closely last night i was surprised by how frequently it is overtly sexual it's very horny. Yeah. Horny the, shit. The, the booby trap. There are things like yeah. that. That are like those are things where you're like Disney would never allow that now. Is not that a rabbit in your whatever. pocket? Are you happy to see me? Which I right, remember right. laughing at as a kid, not realizing it was a boner joke. <laughs> right. Well, because 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 that's like a joke you hear as a kid and you don't get. No. Yeah. yeah. You just you just you just like know it's, it's a joke. Yeah. yeah. And there's like Jessica says like you're the best I've uh, I ever had even better than Goofy. Right. Damn, Goofy's fucking. Right. Like there's that's <laughs> we know Goofy fucks. He has a kid. He's the one, wow. right? Like he has that's what's true. his kid called? Is Goofy's Max. kid Max. from Jessica Max. Rabbit? Maybe. I mean, Max, he's a he's a handsome guy, right? Like he's, yeah. you know, maybe yeah, he maybe just have Rabbit. huge tits. Wait yeah. a second. <laughs> Max uh, is Jessica Rabbit's son. That would what a reveal that would be. But there's just so much shit like that. And like uh, Joanna Cassidy, when she catches him with Jessica and his pants are down. Yes. There's this whole sort of like, you can't keep it in your pants, but it ties back into that whole like, oh, this is like unseemly. It's disgusting that you would fuck a tune. Right. Um, right. There's so much fucking in but this But not movie. impossible. Right. Right. Like, it's more just like, oh, well, come on. Right. Yeah. Well, because well, Jessica Rabbit's review is for it's it's for uh, it's a tune review for humans. Yes. Like and, and, and it's full of a bunch of just horned up human men who wanted to look at the forbidden fruit of this uh, this sexy animated uh, woman. It's, it's a cotton club thing. It's like all yeah. the performers are black and the entire customer base is yeah. white. It's like it right. is a forbidden fruit thing. It really hammers home that the that the the tuned like standing in it for a different race basically. Right. 
And the industry is all white people, obviously, right? And they're in charge. Yes. You know, all the money is going as anyway. I mean, what you're saying, though, Mitch, about like, you know, Eddie Valiant being this guy who's been like broken down by the industry and forgets why he even wanted to be part of it before. And Roger, I guess, being sort of like a savant who doesn't even understand what he's doing and has been yeah. able to sort of just like coast through it blithely. Like he's gotten the sort of lucky path oh, based yeah. solely off of talent. Two sides of the coin for sure. Right. But it's yeah. also like this movie barely even traffics in metaphor, like down to the fact that the red car thing is just literally a thing that happened. It's more just sort of like using this sandbox to comment on actual power dynamics that happen and not just in America, but also specifically, I think the weirdness of show business. And I think this film is really keyed into the the unsavory side of Hollywood that always exists running counter to the idea of it being this like dream factory that just gives joy to people all over the world. And there's no greater distillation of that than this point in time when Hollywood is sort of just like popcorn. It's just like movies are miracles and everything's wonderful and it's people singing and dancing. And then yeah. you would hear all these terrible stories about like the horrible things that were happening to people and children on, you know, performance enhancing drugs and sexual assault and like Eddie Mannix, who uh, Bob Hoskins later played these like fixers, you know, who are like cleaning up movie stars crimes. Like it's so keyed into that push and pull and the yeah. tunes are just representing like the brightest sort of happiest output of it. But the way that humans talk about tunes throughout the movie, not just like Eddie having his contempt, but that scene when the first scene with uh, uh, Maroon, when he calls Eddie into his office and Dumbo flies up to the window and he like makes his crack about like, oh, yeah, yeah, I got him on loan for Disney. They work for peanuts. Like he's so dismissive of them. You know, they're like circus freaks to him. Yeah. And that, which is also, you also just, and it's a great example of just like these little jokes that they just work in that are, that are like little pun jokes that work great, but are treated in that the character treats it like it's a real, it's a real thing. There's no winkiness going on or whatever, you know? Yeah. Zemeckis and Gale have this like comedy principle that in watching all these interviews and listening to commentary tracks for these episodes, I've heard, and Gale didn't write this movie. But, you know, Zemeckis' storytelling sensibility is very much tied into his development with Gale. They're like, our ethos for comedy is we don't really have jokes. Like, everything that everyone says, they believe 100%. And we encourage our actors to play it as truthfully and as, like, honestly as possible. I said the same word two times. But the, the joke comes out of the circumstances being treated that way. And this rules. is like the ultimate version of it's one of the reasons why he's so right for this project is you have things like what happened to that guy? A tune killed his brother, dropped a yeah. piano on his head, where when it's first introduced, you're like, this is just an incredible joke because it's you're a great just joke. <laughs> yeah. right. but and then it but ends up being Hoskins a major plot plays detail. the drama. Absolutely. Right. No, well, I and mean, Joanna that's... Gleason, like right, you have the jo two yes. scenes where they explain it where it's played so dramatically as if it were the tragic backstory in any noir film. But the comedy only comes out of the fact that it's like, dropped oh, I guess people would head. actually die if you dropped a piano on their head. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, we, 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 we give it up for Jessica Rabbit. I mean, the, everyone always talks about how Jessica Rabbit's a very sexy character, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, 
Dolores, she doesn't. She rules. She doesn't Dolores, get enough. She's cool. Uh, yeah, good character. Love Joanna Cassidy in general. Yeah. Blade Runner. She's got a lot of like great pop-ins. You know, great like supporting roles in the eighties. Uh, we never hit Bob Hoskins when you wanted to give him love because he is he's great. Well, we got to talk about Hoskins first. I want to right. I want to run through Griff, and I'm sure you'll have some yeah. too. Some of the people that they wanted for this role because obviously, was, uh, yes, Hoskins to, is not the first right. choice. Like, which is it's the magic insane. of this movie because like Back to the Future right. is a case where the movie's a miracle because they so nearly made all of the wrong decisions and everything got saved at the last time. Uh, other than the Hoskins decision, Roger Rabbit's a miracle because you can't believe they approved all these first draft ideas. Like, it feels like everything should have been noted to death, but it speaks to the level of desperation that Disney was at, that they felt like this gives us a reason to keep the animation studio going. It makes us a place with a little more edge, so high-profile filmmakers want to work with us. They got Spielberg on board because they knew he would be able to manage all of the rights, and they knew he was such a classic cartoon fan. And that got Zemeckis back in the fold. Once they finally, you know, were ready to go with this movie, Disney's thought was, well, of course you have to hire Need one of the star. 10 biggest leading men in Hollywood. All right, Griff, I want to run it down. I want to do it. You can, you can chime in if there's okay. ones I'm missing. But all right, Harrison Ford is, the, is their first ask. That's yeah. who Spielberg okay. wants. Um, which you can see because he could yeah, do sure. the sort of deadpan, you know, serious thing. Against all the comedy, he, but he's he just the only one who could possibly work from the list. Right. He 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 costs too much. Yeah. Then Chevy Chase, which makes sense for the time. Like Chevy Chase still a, a big comedy star. Mm-hmm. He would play it too he would he would play it too goofy. He would he'd just be play too it. smarmy, probably, right? And like he'd be too winky. in on the joke. I think yeah. he's too, too modern yeah. and he's too winky. Yeah. Um you got Bill Murray, who doesn't mm-hmm. get it because Bill Murray's impossible to like offer roles to. But I guess I could see that. But again, he would be too smart, me. Totally. I feel like and too modern. They they both have the cynical sort of like, uh, yeah. you know, post Vietnam edge to them. And I think they both would be embarrassed to be in that movie. Like the the magic of Ghostbusters is that Bill Murray keeps on selling out the fact that he's in the movie Ghostbusters, which works for Ghostbusters, but wouldn't work for this. Agreed. No. Griff, that you nailed it. That's perfect. Eddie Murphy, who turns it down because he doesn't get the concept and says he regrets turning it down. He says it's like the only role he regrets turning down. Interesting. I, I mean, he I feel like in the 80s, like if Eddie Murphy and really always like if Eddie Murphy's in your movie, it just kind of becomes an Eddie Murphy movie. Yeah. Like, I don't know if he could like kind of just like be seamlessly apart. I mean, I'd watch it I mean, like Eddie Murphy's one of those things where especially in the 80s. It's kind of intrinsic, like, you know, like it would be interesting yeah. to see that. I like him better than like Chevy Chase and Bill Murray. But right. The thing with that Eddie Murphy is that like I never Eddie Murphy to me is such a is always such a likable character in my mind. And yeah. And not to not to say that not not to say Hoskins isn't likable because he is. But like no, but he, he has, has to be that, prickly. You're, I he's, know kind of, you're saying, he's, right. he's, he's prickly. And yeah. And I don't know if. If Eddie would have been as good with with that sort of sort of thing, I also remember reading that he like if he took the role, he was insisting on being in uh, Norbit prosthetics, yeah, which might have been a distraction. <laughs> he's, right, but only he's the always Japanese brings ones. those. He brings them to every- yeah. <laughs> I believe he's playing a Chinese character in Norbit. I don't know why I'm correcting you on that. Yeah, I'm sorry for not remembering Norbit vividly. <laughs> like which racism he's doing in Norbit. <laughs> Wags, would you be shocked if I revealed that I've been in Norbit prosthetics this whole time? (laughs) (laughs) And all the time you know me, I'm a very thin man. (laughs) 
I would be surprised because that's an incredible level of effort. I would not expect it from you. It's also like we talk a lot, David, about like movies using movie stars well versus misunderstanding them and how if you're casting a movie star, you want to be weaponizing something in their persona and in the audience's Mm. relationship that they already have to that person. And Eddie Murphy's persona at that point in time was closer to being Roger Rabbit. Like Bill Murray and Chevy Chase, even though they were comedy stars, they were mostly reactors. Like they run circles around people and they clown on other people around them, right? Right. Harrison Ford is obviously much more of a straight man, but Eddie Murphy's the dilemma in his movies. Like, you know, 48 Hours and Trading Places and Beverly Hills Cop, all three of those characters are... The dilemma, the only movie he's made up until this point where he's kind of playing the straight man is coming to America. But in that one, he's also the innocent. I was watching Nutty Professor last night, and it's 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 crazy to me that Eddie Murphy at the same time plays like this heavyset guy. So emotional and like so real. And you really feel for this character. You really feel you really feel for Sherman. That's yep. Sherman, right? And then, um, and Sherman, we got Sherman and Herman. So he, he's, he's like, very, he plays that very real. But then at the same time, he's making like, the movie is making like extremely mean jokes about fat people. Yes. But, it, but at the same time, he's really making you feel for the character. It's such a crazy, it's a, that movie is, that movie is great. His performance in that movie is outstanding. I yeah. think yeah. that is like maybe, I don't know. I mean, best performance is maybe strong because he's, has a lot but like it's uh, it's up there he like won critics awards for that yes. movie like fairly deservedly i'd yeah. say because of what you're saying mitch like he weirdly taps into like the pathos of sherman clump and i and i and i and i and i think that there is i think there is some realness there with with eddie murphy that i think that he is like kind of a misunderstood guy in a lot of ways and i think that he totally. could do it but but again i i i, I, I still no one that beats hoskins in my mind so far yeah. from this list it might be as simple with with Murphy as he, as he was just too. He just would have been too funny. I mean, I think that's it, a big part of it. I have a yeah. whole yeah. a whole theory. Do you have other people on your list, David? I mean, the rest of this list is one. Of, it's one of those like casting article, not the ones I just read. But then there's a a whole list where I'm like, get out of here. Like some of them make sense. Like oh, Robin Williams, Jack right. Nicholson, Robert I Redford, hearing Clint Rome. Eastwood. Yeah, <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah, the the one on this list that kind of popped for me was Wallace Shawn. I don't know if oh, they seriously wow. considered Wallace Shawn, but wow. I, that's interesting. He's yeah. he's of a similar profile. Come in. Here's my whole thing with Hoskins. It's it's the blessing in disguise of all a list actors turning it down because I think they probably. Above all else, this movie seemed very risky to them. Like, this seemed like a movie where if this doesn't work, this is embarrassing. You will look silly talking to a rabbit for 90 minutes if the technology doesn't work, if the tone isn't lined up, all of that. But I also feel like the star of this movie is the premise. Like, the movie cannot handle the weight of someone bringing their movie star reputation into it and you filtering it through what this person does best and what we're used to seeing them do in films and even things like Eddie Murphy being too young, you know, or like beyond all of that, the, the fundamental breakthrough I had watching it last night is knowing how difficult this movie was to make, none of those guys would have put up with this shit. Like, yeah. y- you think about how menial 
making this film was just take after take of lining up the geometry of like maintaining the eye lines and what you ha- where you have to grab what when and shit like the scene which I feel like is quietly the most technically complicated when the weasels come into his house and he's hiding Roger in the sink and there're all these multiple gags where it's like he's got this fake uh, uh, handcuff on that's rigged to make it look like it's being pulled by Roger. They have like a, a pipe underneath the sink that will spring up to spit water in his face. They have like dishes being thrown. The weasels are picking up different objects. They're also holding physical guns, like all this shit. Can you just imagine Harrison Ford being willing to do like that many rehearsals, that many takes, <laughs> like being given that many notes. Like the story I've heard about Eddie Murphy is post Nutty Professor. Once he realized, oh, I was able to do these scenes where I was the only person in them, and I was just sitting there with other stand-ins for eye lines. That he rarely does most of his footage in his movies now. Like he has stand-ins who do anything other than a direct shot. And actors who have worked with Eddie Murphy are like, I barely met him. And he just comes in and does his coverage. And like no one else would put up with this other than someone yeah. like Bob Hoskins, who A, Mitch, fits better into what you're saying as like, you believe this guy is broken, has like given mm-hmm. up. He's got such a coiled rage inside of him, which you really need. Um, but also it's like, you need someone who is grateful enough for this opportunity to be the lead of an American blockbuster that they will put this amount of backbreaking work into making the movie work when so often you're acting against nothing. Nothing, like, yeah. It needs to be right. someone who's hungry. It's also weird back then, right? Like, yes. Like now I feel like with these Avengers movies and all, you know, where it's like so commonplace to be acting alongside tennis balls. But like in the 80s, that's like bizarre to be doing, right? Like that's not something that people would be used to. Kind of having to like develop techniques for the first time for how to approach as an actor while the movie around him is developing techniques for how to make the film around him. It's it's like impossible work. And there's also the fact that he just doesn't look like he should be in a movie. You know, like yeah. Bob Hoskins is such an unlikely movie star that the God, whole time him. you're just like, not only can I not believe that Disney put their most expensive production ever on this guy's furry potato-shaped shoulders, but that <laughs> any like Hollywood studio was willing to put him as the leading man in the center of right. the poster. We also have to give up for the fact that he is canonically Super Mario. Like he remains the man to have played mm. that character until someone else finally takes the role, right? I mean, this is Captain Lou Albano erasure, but Th- sure. that's <laughs> fair. That's true. I, I, I forgot. I didn't forget about Lou Albano, but you know, so, but, there's. Yeah, I, I have a lot of respect for for his his work as Super Mario, even though he doesn't. He did not personally. For sure, yeah. It's it's and that's what I mean. He that that speaks to what it where his star was after this movie, yeah. right? Right, right. You could put him as the the lead. I mean, he's not even Italian. They just sort of cast him where they're like that. Well, he looks like the little guy. Like you know, right. that's enough. Can I quickly say that David also had some Charles Martinet uh, erasure there too? Which uh, wow. <laughs> very rude, to Charles right, Martinet. All right. <laughs> I was digging into Hoskins last night and I found a quote that said he didn't know that Mario was based on a video game until halfway through filming when his son asked him a question about it. Fuck that rules. That's great. 
it, that movie is, is just an, that I, I've I've read about like the production. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure you know all about it, but it's that movie seems like an insane clusterfuck. Can you just imagine like Bob Hoskins reading that script, thinking it's like a spec? That it's an original <laughs> idea based on nothing? I don't know. It's some fucking plumbers in a dinosaur tube movie. <laughs> the, the story I know, apart from all the many stories where he's just like, I hated it. Like, Wasama and I would just get drunk all the time. Yes. Like, it was awful. Is like, there were some crew members who would smoke weed on the beach or something like at night and one night he like walked by and he was like are you guys smoking reefer like i want some of that and like joined in with them and they were every hoskins story and in britain especially he is such a (laughs) uber legend is that he was like kind of like a genuine man of the people working class guy dad was a truck driver type you know like beloved on sets you know professional type act you know everyone loves bob Hoskins. and he's one of those guys where he literally just kind of like stumbled into it like he right like you read like his life before the age of like 27 was like he was a plumber he worked at a zoo like i just wow. like all these odd jobs he was literally a plumber i think the zoo one i made wow. up but good, good, um, he was a plumber he was a window Mario. cleaner <laughs> right he's very paddington-esque in fact <laughs> right and then i think it was a thing where he was like he stumbled into an acting class and then he never thought he was going to pursue it professionally and then he took a friend to an audition and they thought he was in line so they said you next and then he got cast in a Shakespeare in the park and it was just sort Uh, of like British Shakespeare but yeah yeah yes that that is literally the story someone just handed him a script and was like get on stage you're up all right wow you 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 hear stories like that and I'm always just like Man, that friend must have been like, God damn it. Like my yeah, friend who just Bob. came unprepared. <laughs> but he just was like a natural. And you also kind of can't teach that level of personality. You know, it's just yeah, like, sure. this is a guy who's clearly like lived, you know, has like experienced yeah. things. And then, right. He does like pennies from heaven, which leads to his like 80s crime movie run where he does uh, uh, what's, what's L- called? Long Good Friday right. and, Mona, and Lisa. Mona Lisa. He gets the Oscar nomination right. for so that. This is the, that. the weirdest that's why thing. He's, that's why he's at the level where they can right. offer him this, right? Yeah. He makes yeah. this British crime drama that's sort of like a breakout, like an art house breakout, and he wins every Best Actor award other than the Oscar. Like, he yeah. wins the Golden Globe, he wins the BAFTA, he wins everything, he wins most critics' awards. Like, he was very much in line to be some odd British character actor who somehow won a one-off Academy Award. You, you, you know who he lost the Oscar Paul to, Newman, right? Right? right. It right. was the it was color one of those money. makeup wow. awards, right. Yeah, and yeah, and yeah. he's always been like, like look, yeah, it was an honor to be nominated, but like... I, I had the better performance that you made. Like, he, <laughs> right, right. like uh, no, oh, no disrespect to Paul Newman, but come on. Wow. Uh, but but that's so like, good in Mona Lisa. It puts him in that position where it's like he's just been this guy who almost won an Oscar at the moment where every other A-list actor has turned this movie down. And they were like, I don't know, Hoskins. And the fact that he looks like a guy who's actually in a noir movie, that he's not bringing any movie star baggage to it. That he's coming out of this like gritty crime sort of like patina that he had been in and that he's just at service of the film and also like fully committed to figuring out the difficulties of the technology. It's it's like it it couldn't have worked with anyone else or even someone even him under different circumstances wouldn't have worked the same way. Well, well, David talked about his cry moment and my I have a cry moment. Mm-hmm. And my cry moment is when when Hoskins 
turn when he when he decides to make try to make everyone like a uh, he's got to be silly and save the day. Mm-hmm. Oh and yeah. When he, when he turns on the uh the the carnival or the the uh what's it called? The merry-go-round and yeah. starts mm-hmm. singing and dancing. That to me that's my cry moment. That like uh it's it's my favorite part of the entire movie when he's making the weasels laugh themselves to death. Is that seated at all beyond beyond, no. uh, beyond that shot uh, on the That's the, the, why the, I love that. Because yeah. on the desk, you see the one shot of him in the, the still photograph with his right. brother, his late brother, as as, as as circus performers. And then that's basically right. it. That's and all that the hints shows, that he has. In there's, a, there's a picture above that of his family in the circus. Oh, that's yes. right. It's all yes, family. That's yes. right. You yeah. see his dad. It's, I forgot. It's yeah, like yeah, yeah, the yeah. exact same move Zemeckis does in Back to the Future, where all of the background you're given on Doc Brown is photos on the wall in the opening credit sequence and he does the same thing here where it's like the only eddie valiant backstory you get pretty much is photographs right um but it's so well done i also mitch get worked up at that i agree that that scene is great because because he's so sincere about it as he is in every thing in he does in this movie It's, it's such a sincere performance and it wouldn't work the movie doesn't work without it the one that really gets me is the the scene when he gets the camera from Joanna Gleason and has to develop the photo roll, which is from the vacation he went on with her and his brother. Oh, yeah. And he's yeah. looking at the photos while drinking, which is what then turns into the big Zemeckis camera move where you get all the backstory from the photos. But like his his turn from the looking at the photos, you're seeing him smile for the first time in the entire movie. And then he just becomes overcome with grief at the loss of his brother. That's the other thing. It's like not only is so much of the movie him acting against characters who aren't actually on set with him, like animated characters. There's so much of the movie that is Hoskins, like Eddie Valiant in a room with no one else having to drive the story where it's like detective stuff where he like looks frustrated and then he notices something out of the corner of his eye and then he picks it up and looks more closely and then he has the aha moment on his face and then he needs to have that turn of like determination of I know what I need to do next and that's the hardest fucking shit to do as an actor because it's like so unnatural and it's it's all indication in the way that like acting teachers try to beat out of you like don't indicate just feel it but that's like a movie like this calls for unnatural shit where it's like you need to telegraph to the audience exactly what you're thinking because this is a 10 second shot where you need to express four different emotions that advance the plot through your face in close up. Even if you pull this off, no one's going to they're not going to nominate you for an Oscar. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? You're not going to your, your, your performance is never going to be lauded like it should be because it's i mean he's so 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 good in it and also like as much as he did have a boost to his career after this if you're serving the movie well you're not going to be the guy who pops off of this like this is not a movie that makes you into a conventional leading man it maybe makes you more bankable because you've been in a hit but it's like you're gonna play grumpy you're gonna play irritable (laughs) the whole (laughs) movie you're not fun like roger's the character they're gonna make merchandise off of he's the character that kids are gonna like for so many years, they were trying to make sequels to this movie, and a lot of them didn't have Valiant in them. Like, it was like, if this thing became a franchise, it would have been Roger as the franchise. That's my favorite kid in the world, a kid who's like, who loves Eddie Valiant. He's got their crush <laughs> Eddie Valiant that they sleep with every <laughs> Eddie Valiant doll. <laughs> 
David, you had an observation when we were texting beforehand, and, and I'll, uh, uh, you're talking just about how this film reflects Hollywood. Like, I, mm, I mm. You did, was it, it, correct me if I'm misstating, but I think you said this is maybe the best film ever made about Hollywood? I was reflecting on that statement while I was watching it where I'm like, is there a better one? And I'm like, you know, because there's like, you know, the bad and the beautiful, right? Like there's sort of like classic, uh, you know, 50s golden age uh, Hollywood movies that are, you know, about like how the industry. But like, you know, they Roger Rabbit is so clever and so rose tinted and so like nostalgic, but it's also so weirdly clear-eyed about how nasty the industry is sure and how like uh unforgiving it is to like you know like like the it's things like the betty boop scene that inform me saying that but also things like eddie doing the big performance at the end where it's like there's still some sort of love of what everyone's here to do like you know that sort of carries through the entire movie like and I think that's why I make that I'm, I make that statement. I'm tr- I'm Griffin. Like w- what's the, I feel ridiculous making it because like surely there are, there are so many movies about Hollywood. I, I mean, I think you're kind of right because it feels like the movie yeah. that gets at the most sort of a static truth of what Hollywood is. Right. And I think it is that weird combination of like, Zemeckis and Disney and Spielberg as a triumvirate allows you to capture the magic of Hollywood and the like gee whiz the movies and that sort of like rose tinted golden age like don't we just love people putting on a show for us kind of thing. But the very specific place and time this movie has made it, the fact that Disney doesn't really have anything to lose, that they want to make an impression, that Zemeckis has this, like, wind underneath his wings to really, like, go for stuff, allows the movie to have that very, like, clear-eyed view of of the, the ugliness of the industry as well. And I don't know if there's another movie that has, that holds both in such equal balance. Now, Nick, your response was that the the you had something at the other end of the spectrum. You you if you said right, I can't remember. Oh, that's exactly right. Yes. How you, yes, yeah. But like, well, well, if Roger we Rabbit about, is at one end, yeah, I, I think I think the you know in terms of movies that are about Hollywood, like yeah, if you, if you, Roger Rabbit is the 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 best, then I think the you know the it it runs the uh, what's the word I'm looking for, um, span the. Spectrum. Yeah, the, ga- Damn it. the spectrum spectrum. That's what I'm looking for. Right, the right, spectrum right. runs like from from uh, from Roger Rabbit at one end to at the other end Argo, which mm, to me yes. is like I, I saw Argo at a at the Arclight in Hollywood, which is like the most L.A. movie theater. And it was so clearly filled with people who are in the industry or adjacent to the industry. And I just like the. The self-aware laughter, the knowing laughter, the I'm in on the joke laughter at a lot of their Hollywood references, like was just like so I, I just I just feel like that's not what the sort of thing you get from watching Roger Rabbit, which isn't trying to be like like wink at the audience and be like, if you know about the WGA, you know, it, it's more just like re- representing this is how a Hollywood set works. This is kind of a shorthand for what you might see, a, a, you know, an executive doing when he's. Uh, uh, reviewing dailies like this is it's just sort of presenting the stuff in in a way that's accessible to the audience and isn't like you know condescending towards them or trying to in, to uh you know expect some sort of knowledge from the from the audience 
all that said, I just like how like accessible a movie about Hollywood is to someone who would like never have been on a movie set. Like you just sort of like you get all of it. It's just communicated so effectively. It's kind of wild how little exposition this movie has, both in terms of setting up its fairly complicated plot and mystery, and also in terms of movies like this always do so much like we don't trust the audience table setting of like, yes. so a movie is a thing that people sit down in theaters and watch for 90 to 120 minutes. Like the movie is so good at conveying all the rules of itself to you and both the imagined rules that they've created for this fantastical world and also the rules of like, this is how things worked in this time period. This is how show business works. And I also feel like this movie has none of those moments that something like Argo has where you're like, come on, guys, you know that's not how it works. Yeah. Like, you make movies for a living. You know that would never happen. It's like a perfectly easy movie to watch. Like, you know, it's it's enjoyable. But, like, it is crazy to reflect on Argo and you're like, Right. They made a movie about like the, the Iran hostage crisis and all that, the, you know, and the seriousness of this. And the ultimate takeaway of Argo is kind of like, yeah, you know, guys, we just here in Hollywood, we love the movies like that's movie. <laughs> such a weird movie. And the Oscars responded by being like, Ben, you did it. Best picture of the year. Like, congratulations, <laughs> Ben. You're back. You know, you're, back, you're, you're back, in back. You're Batman. Like, that's yeah. it. You're going to be Batman. Like, I know that that's a real thing that happened. Like, I know it's based on a true story. It's just wild that sometimes when you watch Hollywood distill everything into like, you know, it just, when it comes down to it, it's just about making stories that people love. Right. Yeah, I just don't, I can't think of another movie that's able to hold both truths at the opposite ends of the spectrum simultaneously you know it's like either movies are just so fully selling the lies that hollywood tells itself or they're just wallowing in like the cd truth the underbelly uh and and it, it just feels like this movie is weirdly clear-eyed about everything and it helps also that Zemeckis is such a nostalgic filmmaker, but he's always had that slightly cynical edge. I mean, it's it, this thing about him being like the ultimate boomer, but he's always sort of trying to approach things with like a little bit of a a Mad Magazine-esque like satirical deflation. And this is the movie where I think he balances those sensibilities the best. That's the other thing with this movie is it doesn't feel like a noir parody. It just no. feels like a proper noir film. Yeah. But it's not right. It's not winky in the way that could be annoying. Like, you know, like, like, I don't know, like Dead, Wim Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, which is not right. a bad movie. But you know what I mean? Like where it's just like, OK, I get it. This is a total pastiche. I get it. It's it's not a pastiche, really, which is right. so odd. Right. Exactly. I mean, That's what I mean. Right. There's there's a Back to the Future three interview, like from a making of thing where Spielberg is like, the great thing about these guys is it's not just a good Back to the Future movie. It's actually a great Western like this could stand up there with my darling Clementine. And I've always called bullshit on that. I'm like, yeah. Back to the Future 3 is a much better Back to the Future movie than it is a Western. <laughs> right. It is just a Back to the Future movie with Western trappings. But this is the one where that actually applies, where it's like, that he made a pretty fucking good noir movie, even if you take all the tunes out of it. 
And it actually has like a mystery that you're kind of trying to solve with a satisfying reveal. It doesn't yeah. feel like as much as the the highway stuff doesn't really is barely even foreshadowed. I mean, you're just sort of seeing the clover leaf signage and stuff. And you see the um, what do you call it? The 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 there's the discussion of the tra- train cars and all that. But it's that thing I think we I, I said in the used cars episode that like Zemeckis's superpower is uh pointing at Chekhov's gun and convincing you that it's just a uh, decoration on the wall. And there's so much of that where he like has plots set up disguised as jokes that you accept as, well, that, that isn't something that's going to pay off later. That was just for that one gag here, or is just sort of world building or whatever it is. Um, the, the movie works on those grounds. And then you add in the tune stuff into it. And like all of its themes become more resonant and also it just becomes this fucking magic trick movie where you still cannot process how they made it. Where where would you rank this as far as noirs go? Would you say this is is this in like your top far top far top five film noirs or I'm Griffin Newman. I would rank it in my top five noirs, but I feel like that, that answer is weighed by the fact that my biggest complaint with most noirs is not enough tunes. Right, Roger Rabbit not involved. Like, I like Detour, but there's no giant mallets over the head in Detour. <laughs> um, I do love many a noir. It's, I have never been asked to consider whether Roger Rabbit would crack my five noirs. I don't know. I love it as a Hollywood movie more than I love it as a noir. But I think it is, I, I agree with you, Griff, that it's it's a great noir. Can I can I can I say just to talk about the Donald versus Daffy mm. piano scene just because of course it's just one of the best scenes in the movie and you also get to see like two sides of Daffy you see like you see like Daffy going to like berserk Daffy mode right. where his hair is insane and it, it, it that 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 entire scene is just is fantastic and then I want to talk about a, uh, on the opposite end I want to talk about the saddest scene in the movie which is the shoe getting put in the dip. Oh, that poor the, fucking yeah. shoe. Rough, we haven't even talked shoe. about Judge what a Doom at all. We haven't death. talked about Judge yeah. Doom. Yeah, wow. we got to talk about Judge yeah. Doom. We, we got a lot to still talk about. We might put a put a kettle on the iron, David. This might be a twelve hour episode. <laughs> no, this is not going to be a twelve hour episode. This Fine. is gonna, eleven. Eleven. Gonna, deal. Put the kettle on the iron, David. It's eleven. Uh, why, why would I put a kettle? All right, guess. Put a ahead. kettle on the iron, David. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh. Spielberg is like that's the other thing with this movie is this movie could only be made with the participation of Spielberg at this point in time because it's like this is the only time Warner Brothers and Disney characters ever appeared on screen at the same time which could only happen because Steven Spielberg was so powerful every single person in Hollywood wanted to be owed a favor by Steven Spielberg so studios would work against their best interest in exchange for an IOU from Spielberg but the terms of it are so specific where it's like Daffy and Donald have to have the exact same number of words they need to be visible on screen for the same number of frames like everything they do on screen is completely symmetrical in terms of like their close-ups are timed to the same degree they're mostly in two shots same with the bugs and uh, uh, Mickey moments yes. when he's flying out the window and at the very end. Like, there were all these rules that had to be established for how they would allow the characters to coexist. But it feels fun. It doesn't feel, like, contractually reined in. 
wouldn't that be annoying in most movies? And wouldn't those cameos kind of like bum you out? And so like it's 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 underrated how hard it is to pull that off, like to pull off a Mickey Mouse Bugs Bunny. Like what? You know what I mean? Like those little moments. Look, here's a movie that I know you and I love, David, and has been uh, the cause of some controversy on the Doughboys podcast. But compare this to. Wreck-It Ralph, right? Which is the closest someone has kind of come to trying to do a, like, Roger Rabbit. It's new characters plus the original characters, and you're riffing on the entire medium sort of thing. And the appearances by known characters in uh, Wreck-It Ralph are so small, except for Wreck-It Ralph 2, when suddenly Disney characters have primary supporting roles but in the original it's like well mario was off grounds sonic appears as like a psa on a screen you know like it's a lot of supporting or lower tier characters or in small appearances they could only really use the villains and not the heroes and things like that every time a canonically important video game character is on screen in wreck it ralph i do think it kind of underlines the fact that the wreck it ralph characters are not really video game icons that they're creations for the film you're being reminded that wreck it ralph is not is a is an analog for donkey kong due to his adjacency to zangief right it's it's something also (laughs) that like the like the studio 60 problem of like the second studio 60 on the sunset strip acknowledges that snl exists what is the baffling creative decision i like it and uh, <laughs> Wait, do you like that decision or are you all in on Studio 60 in general? No, I like that decision because I think it's insane. Of course, I like that. <laughs> it's SNL insane. Exists. It's insane. And I feel like it's a trap that most movies fall into when you're trying to, like, create new legacy media. Right. And put it in a world alongside the things we know. You get so confused by, like, well, if Donkey Kong exists, is Wreck-It Ralph not just like a thinly veiled parody of Donkey Kong? Is he less popular than donkey kong is he a ripoff like all this shit and i was watching it trying to come up with some take as to why it works in this movie and i don't know what it is but it is so wild that this movie like roger rabbit can coexist with mickey mouse and donald duck and you buy it you accept it he is different enough from them talking about the archetypes and how he doesn't fit into them cleanly that it doesn't feel like he's a double beat of some other character that already exists Right. And he's also kind of a schmo. Like it's it's acceptable because like you don't buy you you buy him as like a sort of B list Mickey Mouse or right? Like he's not but even also, supposed to be a star. Benny feels iconic. Like Jessica yes. feels iconic. Baby Herman Benny, feels iconic. Man, All the yeah. characters Benny, that, Benny's pretty cool. The introduction of Benny feels like the introduction of the Batmobile. And you're like, it's this so character cool. hasn't even been set up and it feels epic. Like it's not even the payoff of anything. It's suddenly just a, a door opens and Benny the cab comes out and you want to fucking our He's inside another holler. car. Yeah, he rules. He's in the back of a police car. What about and when the, he drives anyway, another yeah. Car. Later, he I drives know. the car. So he cool. drives a car. The car drives a car. When he gets in a car and drives the car, I mean, Benny's it's great. Unreal. So good. But there's that scene where Eddie talks to Baby Herman outside of his office, and it's the second time we've met Baby Herman. Like, you meet him in the opening cartoon, then you get to see what he's actually like in real life the second they call cut. And even so, your third time seeing Baby Herman, it still feels like, whoa, this scene is yeah. huge. I can't right. believe Baby Herman is in this movie. <laughs> I got a 50-year-old sex drive and a three-year-old dinky, I believe. Is, is that the line? It's something yeah. along yes. those lines. There's also when he walks off 
the the set after uh, Roger blows the take, he like sticks his finger up a woman's dress. There's that yeah, thing where he God. like walks between her legs. He walks between he, her like, legs and kind of grabs. Yeah, kind of right. whatever. He kind of flops around. Yeah. There's an infamous thing when Jessica's falling out of the window that her dress flies up. And when it was released theatrically, it looked like she wasn't wearing underwear. And Disney denied mm. that it was a deliberate thing, but a lot of animators think that they snuck it in. Is that like the 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 dicks in Little Mermaid or like the cloud that says sex in The Lion King? Like all those weird little uh, urban yeah, legendy kind of... Yeah, I think yeah. it is. And it's one of those yeah. things they've like corrected on home video releases. Sure, they like right, painted right. underwear on her. Yeah, I remember reading about it because it was like the the Laserdisc release was when consumers noticed it because you could frame you couldn't frame by frame a VHS, but you could frame by frame a Laserdisc, and people right. were like, "Whoa, what's going on here?" Yeah, and it was in clearer quality. I mean, Richard Richard Williams was this guy who was sort of this like outsider British animator whose whole thing was like, I think the art of animation can be pushed so much further than what anyone's doing. Uh, and very briefly, a thing I've talked about too many times on this podcast. But, like, you know, animation is 24 frames per second. Even, like, the most vivid animation, like Disney-level animation, is usually shot on twos, which means you're only doing 12 drawings a second, and you're photographing each drawing two times, and that's still enough to create the the persistence of vision that, you know, makes motion look like it's happening. Richard Williams was a guy who was like, you do everything on ones. Wow. Like, you just do everything as clearly as possible. And the stuff that you were talking about, Weiger, where it's, like, the perspective shifts and, like, you know, inanimate objects moving in space and all these sorts of things that, like, the second CGI was created, that opening, everything in the kitchen would have been CGI other than the characters. Right. It's, like, the ballroom in Beauty and the Beast. They're, like, there's no reason to hand draw the ballroom, especially if we're mimicking this big crane shot. If that's, like, a set structure... It's easier just put it in a computer and have the computer spin around this, uh, you know, environment or these objects, uh, the birds and, and rescuers down under, the stampede and Lion King. You know, anything that's like quantity yeah. or large spaces or uh, a non-organic material, vehicles, things like that. And that opening sequence is just he had been for years trying to make his big passion project. He would take jobs in order to self-finance his movie. The, 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 the Thief and the, the cobbler. cobbler. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which people believe uh, Disney stole for Aladdin. The designs wow. in Aladdin right. are very similar to Thief and the Cobbler. It's not based off the Aladdin myth, but there's like the the Sultan in Aladdin is like identical to Thief and the Cobbler. The villain looks like uh, Jafar. Um, but his whole thing was like, I'm going to make this on my own terms in a way no studio will allow. I'll direct some commercials. I'll direct like the Ziggy Christmas special. Like he did all these for higher jobs in order to self-finance his movie, which he never finished, really. It got taken away from him by rights holders. And then Harvey Weinstein bought it and he finished it with shitty animation and dubbed voices over it, added songs. Mm. It was never supposed to have any dialogue. You can see people who have sort of reconstructed on YouTube and it's incredible. But that opening sequence is Richard Williams being like, Disney is giving me the most money anyone has ever put towards animation. Like this was classified as the most expensive animated film of all time because they put so much money into the animation because it was such a hurdle to have it coexist with the live action. That that opening sequence is just him showing off and also him yeah. like stretching his arms and going like, finally, I get to do this shit. And even to the degree of like the number of knives 
that are flinging towards Roger through the air <laughs> and the gleans off of them. The fact that he's animated, how sharp they are and how shiny they are. And they keep on spinning around, not just going straight. And you have all these camera moves in it. It's just like wild fucking shit. But I also think it was kind of done by this rebel outlaw crew consciously put in a bunch of really fucking horny shit into the movie. <laughs> the, the, it's funny in the beginning when they were, when, when the director's so mad at, Roger for having birds around his head because it was a great take. Such and then he take. just then he just improvised he improvised birds instead of stars. Why would he be so upset about the birds instead of stars? And then at the end of the movie when the bricks fall him and the start the callback to the stars going around his head is great. Also, I mean, you gotta as a as a filmmaker, you gotta accept the happy accidents. You know, maybe it's not what you storyboarded, but the birds <laughs> work. The birds play. Do you guys know who that director is at the beginning of the movie? No. Joel Silver. Wow. Yeah, wow. Every wow. time I watch it, I'm like, who's this character actor who's so good they cast who's like a Joel Silver type? It's actually Joel Silver doing such a good job of playing a Hollywood asshole. That's, That's wild. That, he's that, so funny. All the, all those like little touches of like, I mean, just even when the, the patty cake thing and then he Roger Rabbit flips, flips it into a movie, basically. He does like the little flip book animation. Oh, yeah. It's so it's so great. I mean, there's just all the little movie like movie touches and nods to 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 just movie history and stuff. And, and the fact that all the voices are a lot of the original voice, the people who did the the voices in the first place, right? Isn't there right. a lot? Isn't of, this uh, yeah right? One of the last Mel Blanc performances. Mel it Blanc. might be the very last. I, I mean, yeah, it's right at the end. Wow, it's in the last. And there's so many background characters who are like deep cut animation nerd picks that like jumped out to me where I'm like, oh, that's like the clown from like the old Fleischer brother shorts, like things where you're like, there's no reason for them to license it other than that. It adds verisimilitude that in any of these group shots, you're combining sort of like iconic cartoon characters, characters who just look appropriate because they actually have that history, even if they aren't known by name to most people. And then these new characters and, and part of it is that you have that tapestry. Like, it's one of the reasons why I think you buy all the characters that this movie's created is because you have so many different art styles on screen at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think I, I, I think the other element of that, and this is, Griffin, you, you touched on this, I think, uh, uh, very well earlier, but it, it's, it's just that there isn't a clear, like, one-to-one of Roger Rabbit is blank, mm. Benny is blank, Jessica Rabbit is blank. It's not like there's a clear existing analog, you know, because I think a lazier version of this movie it would have been Roger Rat, and it just would have been Mickey Mouse, you know what I mean? It just would have clearly been Mickey Mouse. Mickey Mouse doesn't exist in this world, and we're just going to pretend that this is our Mickey Mouse stand-in. Um, is this, are you pitching the Weiger version of this? Roger Rat? <laughs> I've been trying to get Roger Rat off the ground for a while. Not a lot of takers. I've been trying to do that, and I've also been trying to reboot the Ziggy Christmas special. Again, not a lot of luck. Not bad. Um, I'll say the Ziggy yeah. Christmas special, not bad. <laughs> Uh, let's talk about Judge Doom and the dip scene. I was going to say, which we I have feel to like, talk about Doom. Because we were talking about the different moments that like make us tear up. But I also feel like this is a big seminal, like, this movie scarred me. I still am haunted by this imagery right. movie. Yeah. I can't believe they killed that fucking shoe. Yeah, like, people will pick different images or different moments. For me, it's definitely the shoe moment. 
is the mm. one that has always upset me the most. I think part it's of it very is very upsetting. I yeah. said to David, it feels like this movie's version of the like look into your heart Miller's crossing scene. Like the thing that makes it so upsetting isn't just that it's so violent, but also that like the shoe is pleading for its life. You see yes. it experiencing pain. Oh, it's heartbreaking. It's just it's, it's like a it's like a like an animal being killed. And, and but they're doing it in a way that, it, you know, it's just a cartoon, but it's still just it hurts your heart for for something that's just on s- screen for just a few seconds. And it, and it and it gets fucking wiped out. I mean, just a great introduction to the this most evil man on. He feels like the most yes. evil guy on Earth. Well, and also the the status of tunes within this reality, whereas that there are cops all around, you know, and he is and this this is a shoe he is just executing in cold blood with no consequences. No one cares. It's, yeah. it's just like no one gives a shit. But and, and it's also like the shoe hasn't even as far as I can tell, hasn't even done anything wrong. It's just sort of there. Right. The it's just one of the ones that flopped over. out of the box. Yeah, yeah. All the shoes fell out. He picked that one randomly and just killed it for sports. I feel, yeah, it feels like murder. It feels like he. Yes. It feels like he should be in trouble for that, right? Like, it doesn't feel right. You would think so. No, yeah. it's abuse. I mean, it's one of those scenes where I just now, like, it it freaked me out when I was a kid. And now when I watch it, I have to, like, go away inside. Yeah. If that makes sense. Like, <laughs> yeah, right. I just have to be like, this is a scene from the film Roger Rabbit. And that's what I'm watching. And that that's why this is not, like, a thing that I need to be worked up about. Like, I, I have to detach I got I got to dis- disconnect myself from because when I was a kid just thinking of the just saying the things that st- that stuck with you the shoe for sure and 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 judge doom is it judge it's judge doom judge right doom. Yeah. judge doom judge yeah. doom but uh also the the like the the other one is the baby the car and the bullets I really like the bullets were yes. maybe a little bit problematic now but the 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 bullets always stuck with me too but the shoe the shoe scene is just like for a little kid seeing that moment it just it, it, it the the it, it makes it feel like the it's oh this is like the real deal this, this is yes. this is intense Roger Rabbit could be destroyed in this movie and you don't want to see Roger Rabbit get dunked in the dip it's it uh it really yeah. raises the stakes of the entire movie yeah they had to show they had to show a character getting dipped early to for you to understand yeah. what was going on and like the fact that the color of the shoe bleeds into the dip and then when he takes yeah, his God. glove out it's like paint colored like it's like you know their essence is dissolving. Dear God. Uh, I also feel like these types of cartoons that this movie is riffing on pointedly don't have physical stakes, right? Like people can get hit by an anvil and they spring back to life. You can run into a wall and then inflate yourself back up. There's something so upsetting about seeing a cartoon character actually be destroyed, especially in a way that acknowledges that they're like kind of made out of paint. Because it feels like it's a betrayal of the rules that we've all accepted for a century. Well, well, no one they, they even say it might be Judge Doom, but who says something like like they thought there was no way to kill a tune. Right. Or they, 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 yeah. they thought there was no way to like like right. it, it's basically like establishing. Immortal. Right. Yeah. These would otherwise be immortal. So then if you think about snuffing out an immortal life. Yeah. I mean, that we're like Battle of Helms Deep. Elves getting killed shit. It's just like, holy shit, point. this the stakes of dying. I mean, that's like of non-existence for something that would have otherwise been around forever. That's a completely different level of just like, you know, mortal death. Also, other than Judge Doom, spoilers, uh, like the worst cartoon characters we meet in this movie are kind of chaotic, you know? 
Like the most menacing cartoon character we meet is probably the gorilla bodyguard yeah. uh, uh, bouncer at the club. But most of them seem to exist just to give other people joy in one <laughs> sure. way or another. So there's something so upsetting about like, why are you murdering a child? Like the shoe just wants to make you laugh. Yeah, the, the evil cartoons are in cahoots with with evil people like the gorilla or like right. the, the weasels. The weasels, yeah. Yeah. To think that like Mickey Mouse could be dunked in dip is just terrifying, by the way. But right. I, I want to say that Tweety Bird is a real motherfucker in this movie. Well, oh, I, yeah. I was going to say addendum. Some of them are agents of chaos. <laughs> <laughs> What's Tweety, Tweety doing? Bird makes me laugh. He, I mean, he's funny, but he, he's he, funny. he, 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 he sends Valley to his death. Basically, it's, it's I mean, another, I guess you can't die in Toontown. That's Hoskins the thing. I feel like in Toontown, right? Yes, yeah. Hey, Tweety. <laughs> the fact <laughs> that he has familiarity with Tweety, it's like right. much like the Betty moment where he speaks mm-hmm. to her with this sense of longing. In that moment, it's like, oh, this isn't a random occurrence. He doesn't just recognize Tweety as a fan. They've been through this shit before. And and that's a, that is a funny point because because he because Tweety knows him. Yeah. And David, it makes me start thinking, is there some sort of situation where Valiant is fucking Tweety <laughs> at some point? <laughs> I, I, I think it's fair to ask questions. This is a very unusual world. And like I say, he greets him with familiarity. I mean, I don't know. It's Why another not? thing I love that they all <laughs> know him, that he used to be like Toontown was his regular beat. He was a yeah. friend yeah. of Toons. Right, right. He, you, you, we, and he has that line where he's like, we used to have fun doing, we thought it was like funny. You know, we thought right. it was like a lot of fun. Um, I love how he says that with like total disgust. Right. He was, even if it was somewhat condescending, he was friendlier to Toons than most humans were. They yes. clearly all have this affinity for him whenever he shows up. And his brother's death, yeah, made him made it made him go a little crazy in that. But to talk about Toontown in general, we just I just want to talk about it for a second because it's insane. As soon as they go into Toontown, it's insane, and I love it. And the fake Jessica Rabbit is fucking insane. I mean, there's two crazy parts. The two craziest parts in this movie is Bob Hoskins driving the car, and then and then uh and then Bob Hoskins going into Toontown for the first time, which is just. The the flip of the movie where it's just this insane cartoon world. That's and the this- Wizard of Oz moment when they're in the tunnel right. and it's so dark and the end of it is just like a boarded door and the mm-hmm. Sylvestri music is just like rising and rising in ominousness and then it just opens and it's like a fucking musical number with the trees singing. It's incredible. I would have thought that, so that 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 song "Smile, Darn You Smile." I would have thought like I'm surprised that doesn't come up more. I'm surprised that isn't a song that has a little bit more staying power. I mean, I always asked for it back when I would go to the club. I, I would I would ask people to put it on so I could get Lotus smile, darn you smile. But it, it usually fell upon deaf ears. I'm not sure what the what the titles what the song is actually called, but like that's that's the part I know of it. But like it is it is a thing of just like going back to Judge Doom. You get his menace and his malevolence when you see a uh, uh, you know a valiant driving into Toontown, and it's just like pure, just like joy and like wonder around him, and, and the fact what that Judge he's Doom wants to do with himself. it, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah, and 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 Doom just wants to like just erase this, like li- almost literally erase it via the dip. The movie is so good at holding off Toontown for that long, and the way that everyone speaks of it, and the fact that the movie itself takes place in such a seedy. Uh, vein makes you think that Toontown is going to be in some way 
gross. You know, you're like, well, this movie's already transposing cartoon characters into like a hard-nosed world. Toontown is going to be like some sort of ghetto. It's going to have crime. It's going to be chaos. And then the fact that it's so cheery, it yeah. does really hammer it home. And that's where it's just like, Hopkins is acting off of nothing. Hoskins, sorry. It's like yeah. acting off of nothing. Like at that point in the movie, you're like, he's just in a blue screen environment talking to walls. Anthony Hopkins was acting off of nothing in Thor, Griffin. That's what yes. you're thinking of. Right. No right. acting required. <laughs> right. I want to go back to Doom for a second. There, the casting of Christopher Lloyd is so wild, especially like coming right off of Back to the Future, where this guy's just fully minted as like the lovable lunatic. Like he's this guy who's so like high wire energy. He's such a like sort of like lunatic. Right. He's so cheerful. Cheerful. But he's very right. cheerful and innocent. Uh, even like Reverend Jim in uh, uh, Taxi is like a real innocent character. And then in this to just make him like like a human vulture, like the Grim Reaper. Yeah. And all the weird makeup they do on him. And he's got that weird nose and that weird chin. And I noticed they also like paint his jawline on to make his face look thinner. But in a movie where all the other humans are like, you know, they're not filling in Bob Hoskins bald spot. Like, they're not making anyone look super glamorous in this movie. The fact that he's so artificial looking yeah. puts you off. Like, it, it it makes you ill at ease before you even start to suspect that he might be a tune because that doesn't feel like a rule that's even been established. So I feel like the, the shoe moment is the one child scarring moment and then the other moment is his, his eyes, right? Like yeah. that's the other moment that freaks kids out. Did that freak you guys out? Yeah, yeah, and the hair yeah. and the buzzsaw. I remember the eyes really getting me when I was a kid and now when I watch that, I'm like, this is great. This rules. Like yeah. it's yeah. so cool it's really when good. his, yeah, it, it just rocks. But I also think like the fact that you never see him in full cartoon mode, the fact that it's only cartoon elements coming out of this rubber skin, yeah. even when like Mickey comes in at the end and says like, I wonder who he really was. There's something that, that lingers with you that makes him so horrifying where it's Ugh. just like, who the fuck was this guy? Like they don't really answer the mystery. I do. I do wonder. I do. I do want to, I do want to see the tune version of like the full tune version of him. I right. want to go full tune. I want to see full tune. Wow. I need it. So people who audition, and it's crazy again that Lloyd isn't the first choice considering yeah. that he'd worked on, but, but like Tim Curry apparently auditioned and was too scary, yeah. which is wow. one of those tapes that I would wow. love to see where like people are watching it like, no, this is, this is just fucked up. <laughs> and like, no one's going to be able to handle this. <laughs> um, and then who's the, oh, Christopher Lee turned it down. Right. Which is another one. I'd love to see Christopher. I mean, Christopher Lloyd's perfect in this movie. But this also kind of feels like Christopher Lloyd giving a Christopher Lee performance for most of the yeah. movie. That's the, fair. The The reason why you need Christopher Lloyd for this is because it's I don't end. know that Tim. Right. Exactly. The end is right. like yeah. what he pulls off that few actors could. What's surprising is how scary he is up until that point. I mean, he murders yeah. a shoe. He murders this show. No, but he does seem legitimately scary. And he is. And that turn at the end is so like, I mean, I just feel like no one goes 
as big as Christopher Lloyd, really. He just can just explode. It sounds like for this part, they open the audition page up to just L's. Lee and Lloyd. I mean, Lee and Lloyd. They should have had a double act. <laughs> they would have been great together. I'm happy to never see another Roger Rabbit, but I'm also sad to never see another Roger Rabbit. I, 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 I want both. I want to never see a sequel, and I also would love to see what the sequel would have been. So, there's definitely a ton of scripts that have been written over the years. There was one that seems like it got closest to getting made called The Toon Platoon that would have been yes. a prequel. Mm of Roger and the Toons fighting in World War One. I. I mean, I don't mean to bring him up, but you know who worked on the, the Roger Rabbit sequels, right? Like in the 90s. Who? J.J. Abrams. You wow. Know, th- then wow. a Spielberg, you know, protege. Wow. It, like definitely like was helped, helped in developing the movie you're talking about, Griffin. Still want to see him, Mitch? J.J. could have done it much earlier. He could have done it. <laughs> I've read reviews of Toon Platoon scripts that made it sound good, uh, but it certainly feels like a thing that they just struggled with for years and years. And I also think that the deal structure was very weird on this movie, especially in terms of getting Spielberg involved. And Spielberg made like an, uh, a bananas percentage of the gross of this film. Like as a producer, he had one of the richest first dollar deals that I think anyone's ever had. And wow. it was sort of a thing where Disney retained all of the marketing, merchandising rights to Roger as a character. And they just went off and did like, we'll do three more theatrical Roger shorts. We'll do like a lot of Roger merchandising. We'll put him in the theme parks. Like that was the area where they could make more money. But I always heard that there was an issue where like, it's so expensive to make the scripts that were written were even more ambitious than the first film. And they would always crunch the numbers and go, there's no way we can make this and not lose money because between Zemeckis and Spielberg, we end up giving away like 60% of the grosses or something like that. Should have just done it. They should have just done it. It also just feels like this is, I mean, there's a Toontown in Disneyland and Disney world. And it just feels like this sort of thing of like, Disney knows to hold on to it. Like, uh, I mean, the idea of Toontown anyways is a, is a good Disney property. It's like, oh, this wacky place that kind of kids like, I guess. I, I, but it does it does feel strange that I'm just like, what is the relationship to do young kids still watch Roger Rabbit? Do they even know who he like you guys were saying early on? is like so. I, th- I liked Roger Rabbit himself when I was a kid. But like, what does he even represent to people now? I, I, I don't know, because I feel like. Nerdy people, nerdy film fans probably love him, but then do what like to a younger generation, do they even know he exists? You know what I mean? I don't feel like this is a film that that Gen X parents are showing their kids. I could be wrong, but I don't feel like this is a this is along the lines of some of the of like, you know, uh, even other Zemeckis is. I feel like Back Mm -hmm. to the Future. Yeah, you're you know, you're seeing you're screening that. But I don't feel like necessarily that it's being made a point to pass this down generationally. I'm just assuming. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, because like, right. I'm 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 the youngest of the four of us. And I certainly feel like this movie was presented to me as like this is a movie that all kids need to see, you know? 
But I don't know how much that extends past, like, maybe a generation or two beyond. Like, I know my sister certainly saw it. My sister's 10 years younger than me, nine yeah, years younger Yeah, but she had me. you for a brother. Like, right, that's and, she, yeah. and she loved it. But I also feel like, this is my bigger question. I feel like she loved it. We watched it a number of times. It feels like it was a film that was one of her favorites at a certain age. But I also feel like I had curated a lot of the context for her in terms of what Mm. I was watching all the time. And my big question is, like, because this movie doesn't over-explain itself, so many of not just the, the best jokes but the best plot points are based on trust in the audience's knowledge of how cartoons work. And I wonder if cartoons have changed in terms of their basic language, the types of humor, in a way where this, these things aren't as known as a given to young children, but also that I feel like my generation, our generation vaguely, was like sort of the last to have to inherit older cartoons. You know, it was still a time where there was like a lot of reruns happening. You were still seeing like Looney Tunes on Saturday morning and 60s Mm. Hanna-Barbera cartoons. And then even like Cartoon Network, when they start and it's 24 hours, they're filling up so much of their programming with that sort of legacy stuff. But I feel like from 2000 on, there's just enough new cartoons that kids are never seeing older things, that their understandings of these characters and these tropes are so much more limited that even something like the what, what you were bringing up, Mitch, the, the fake Jessica Rabbit is so the kind of joke that was repeated in like so many Tex Avery cartoons that you would see where yeah. it's like, you know. Uh, uh, here comes the woman, she turns around and her face is like a dog, like literally or whatever it is, you know? The rules of like the being able to throw a hole up onto a wall and then be able to transport through it. Like all these things, I don't know if they make sense anymore. I'd be very curious as a man who probably will now never have children, uh, but like raising Griff. kids with this movie. Yeah, shut up, Griff. What are you talking I, about? I don't know. Crazy, In this landscape? freak. Yeah, and this Roger, Roger Rabbit made you realize this? <laughs> no, no, no. The pandemic made me realize this. But no, I'm saying, it was Roger Rabbit. Admit it. No, I used to think, man, I can't wait to show my children Roger Rabbit someday. That was my largest sort of incentive for wanting to have a family, was being able to sit them around the fireplace, <laughs> show them some Roger. Uh, but but I, I don't know. I, I, I feel like the movie just works fundamentally. But I'm curious if it's one of those movies that still plays even if you don't understand the things it's riffing on or if it's a movie where we're slowly sort of like eradicating its context from the the collective consciousness. That's the real question. I think you could be right, yeah. Do kids uh, watch Looney Tunes? No, no, that's the question. Do kids watch Looney Tunes? Like 100%. I don't think they do. Because like the piano falling on your head gag, which we've touched, we've touched on a bunch. Like I feel like a lot of contemporary eyes who grew up on Peppa Pig and Paw Patrol, right? Um, and then then maybe you don't have any context for that being a thing. Like you're just like, oh, that would kill somebody. You don't even understand it's a joke. Totally. But even like the best of modern uh, children's animation stuff, like Adventure Time or whatever, has such a different temperament, has such a different relationship to its medium. I just think there was like 40 years where everything was trafficking in that vocabulary of like the rules of cartoon physics and violence and then those 40 years of entertainment kept being replayed over and over again 
to later generations. And now people, I think kids just watch whatever premiered on Netflix that week. Not to be like the cranky mm. old man about it, but kids today. Kids I'm sure they, they don't even know about Looney a spinning Tunes. bow tie gag. <laughs> I mean, the the new Looney Tunes on HBO Max, I think, are really good and have done a really good job of threading that needle between like modern sensibilities and the classic rules. They don't feel like they're trying to update them. Uh, but I, who knows? I feel like the people watching those are me, aren't kids? Right. Um. I know what we're going to do. We're going to just make a short of Roger Rabbit eating Jessica Rabbit's ass or vice versa. Right. That'll get millennials uh, on board. Yeah, that's that uh, Kids don't relate to Roger Rabbit. It's because they think he isn't down with eating ass. <laughs> Griff, Griff, this just flashed. Uh, I have a news break for you, Griff. What? What? Uh, Forky just won an Emmy. What? Forky Forky asks a question. Wow. Oh my god. One outstanding short form animated program. Forky, wow. my favorite modern cartoon character. Congrats uh, to Forky. So just, just speaking of cartoon characters. Yeah. This is like a real life Roger Rabbit moment. The Forky's uh he's up at stage and the Emmy's winning uh winning an award. I hope he waddled up to that podium and they had to lower the mic all the way down. <laughs> uh, I don't want Forky to get COVID though. They gotta, they gotta be careful. <laughs> Keep Forky safe. Uh, well, this is right. the, this is the other thing I wanted to say. So we we'll do a merchandise spotlight sometimes on this show, a segment that is very unpopular that I constantly have been trying to push up a hill for five years. Uh, and because you guys are the Doughboys, I thought, oh, can I do like a merchandise spotlight based on fast food tie-ins? Like this movie must have had fast wow. food tie-ins but i started digging into it and the tie-ins it had at the time skewed kind of more adult like mm. they had a promotion with mcdonald's and a promotion with coca-cola and they animated an entirely new ad that was like uh roger rabbit and jessica rabbit going through drive-in but it felt like their promotion was just the cups have roger rabbit on them now like the adult supersized soda cups have roger rabbit on them now there weren't toys there wasn't anything like that it feels like the movie was pitched a little bit more as like uh you know an all ages thing rather than trying to send it straight down the family lane because i think they were trying to overcome the perception that if it's animated no grown-up is going to go see it they wanted it to seem like a cool movie but then over the years there were multiple times where Roger Rabbit was included in like a happy meal promotion but it was always when they would do those sort of like the best of disney promotions mm-hmm. where it was just sort of like this month's happy meal is like the five biggest disney characters and Roger Rabbit would be included with like Mickey Donald Goofy Pluto Minnie Roger or it would be like the 10 most famous Disney movies of all time, you know, and it would be like Pinocchio, Cinderella, Roger Rabbit. Like they were really kind of putting him on that pedestal of we're doubling down on this character being one of our legacy characters. Mitch just changed his virtual background to a rabbit. <laughs> yeah. Now he's he's petting it very aggressively. Mitch, no, Mitch, you're going to hurt it. You don't know your own strength. But even like Toontown was building this like area of Disneyland that was themed around Roger and that environment, Mm -hmm. which over time has become Mickey's Toontown. And even though it has the Roger Rabbit ride still in it, it doesn't really relate to that movie anymore. Like it feels like there was a brief window where they were very committed to making Roger Rabbit like a Disney legacy character, even down to the shorts. And then I think it's once 
the Renaissance happened once like Little Mermaid hit and Beauty and the Beast hit. They were like, oh, we don't want the funny character anymore. We have these big sweeping romantic musicals that are taken seriously. We don't need some guy who's only going to work in like shorts and commercials. Yeah, I, I was surprised on that note. I was surprised by how unceremoniously it was presented on Disney Plus. It yeah. was just like you like it's just kind of like right next to like, you know, the Apple Dumpling Gang rides again or whatever. It's just like it's not even like the, it has its own like crazy splash page. And I, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, sometimes I feel like these streaming services try to call a little bit more attention to some things and it didn't feel like that at all. I felt like the, Oh, there's just another thing in our library. Watch it if you want. It's just like quietly a beautiful 4K transfer that's on there that looks excellent. Yeah, it looks great. Do you know? Do you know one of the one of the things I remember is the car as a plush toy. I remember the there was a plush toy of that car, and I think it like even maybe still exists in some form. But like at Disney, if it's just some shitty toy in in Toontown, still. I mean, I found there there was like a limited amount of merchandise for when the movie came out, but then I found like a licensor catalog from a year or two later, from like 1990, that Disney mm-hmm. sent out that was like. 80 different Roger Rabbit items. Like two years after this movie, they were hitting it hard. And they just clearly were invested in trying to make this character stick around. I do think there's something kind of beautiful, though, to the fact that the character, like as much as it's a bummer, because I think Roger Rabbit rules and he deserved to stick around. It's nice that he's kind of crystallized. And those those shorts are good, which they would release before other Disney films. I know one of them was before Honey, I Blew Up the Kid. And I forget where. The, oh, yeah. And then yep. one of them ended up going straight to video. It never got released, but they were like all really good. And they were sort of the farm team used to develop people who then later went on to direct the Disney features like Rob yeah. Minkoff, who did The Lion King, directed the first two Roger shorts, I think. Oh, wow. Yeah, you're right. He directed the first two. Uh, Was one of those a roller coaster? Were, uh, Tummy yes, Trouble a, yes. and Roller Coaster Rabbit. And then there was okay. Trail Mix Up. Yeah. Uh, which is from the guy who went on to direct Mulan. So another another uh, can, wow. Yeah. Can you can you watch them anywhere? Are they available to watch? I'm gonna watch some of these shorts. I have to imagine they're on YouTube. Yeah. But but it feels like they've never gotten a proper release. No, if you buy the 25th anniversary Roger Rabbit Blu-ray, apparently they're on that. And I do have that. Okay. So I suppose I could wow. yeah. I have. I remember. I remember. I remember some other. I remember uh, my. I remember there was some other merch. I remember my dad bought the baby Herman uh, condoms. (laughs) (laughs) Bringing your dad into this? Yeah, really. (laughs) My father, who's passed away, (laughs) he bought the baby Herman condoms. Uh, Rest in peace, Dad. Yeah. (sighs) Um, is there sometimes anything else? you gotta use your dad as a punchline? You gotta, you gotta right. do sometimes, it. Sometimes, like you for gotta. the joke, you just yeah, yeah. Especially for the joke here to defend good. himself. Yeah, <laughs> especially if the punchline revolves around his penis being small. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Of course, that's huge. Like father, like son. <laughs> um, is there anything else we want to discuss before we play the box office game? Any scenes we've forgotten? The only thing I wanted to mention is that I do think in the legendary Mickey Bugs duo appearance, Mm -hmm. Bugs puts Mickey to shame. Like, 
I don't yeah. even, I feel like Mickey's easy to beat up on because he's kind of like a non-character, especially yeah. now. But like Bugs is being the cool Bugs Bunny that we know. And Mickey's lines are just like, hey, Bugs, you know, yeah, you better tell him. Like he's not doing it. He's, what is what is Mickey contributing? Nothing. It kind of just like exposes Bugs is him. like the coolest movie star of all time. Right. No one has ever been cooler on screen than Bugs Bunny. And he just drips personality. And Mickey at this point's like a wet fucking blanket. Mickey yeah. just immediately goes into like beta mode. Like he's just like, I'll just bounce off of whatever bug says, I guess. Well, I got to just say that both of them though, Daffy and Donald just put both of them to shame. I mean, the piano oh, scene it's just is a just, better scene. That seems great. Yeah, better just, scene. Yeah. yeah. I have a moment. The, uh, that, that I, that I think is great is the moment where there's, I, I'm I'm looking up his name right now. Oh, Angelo. It's a, so they're like a guy like Angelo, they establish as a dick. And then, Oh, at the bar Bob, at the bar. And Bob yeah. Hoskins is like, I don't like tunes or whatever. And, and puts his head down and like shoves yeah. an egg in his mouth or whatever. And then he's like, that guy's going to sell you out. And then judge doom comes in and that guy doesn't sell Roger out. You think you're going to yeah. sell him out. He doesn't sell him out. That moment rules. Angelo. Yeah, it's great. Angelo proves to be a good guy and he likes Roger enough that he's not going to even sell him out. It's awesome. All the human casting is so good. Like the guy who plays Maroon is so fucking good. The Mm -hmm. Marvin Acme guy is so good. Like these people don't have a lot of time to make impressions. Yes. They do. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, But they also look like faces from like the 1930s. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yes. They do. They do. A hundred percent. And like this movie is like a hop and a skip from like Barton Fink, like from like similar satires of that era of Hollywood. Like that's basically like the Coen brothers could look at this and be like, Oh, we could use that guy. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's that vibe. It's just such a good movie that there's like nothing to really critique. Of course you can critique, critique how it, some of the, the graphics have aged a little bit or whatever when he's driving his car, but it still looks fantastic. I mean, it's just, it's the uh, I, I can't even find much more to say just because I love the movie so much. Yeah, I have literally one critique. Wow, there is a there is a moment on the studio lot where there's a saxophone player playing for the cast of Fantasia. Weiger, I noticed this too. It's not a real saxophone sound. It's a synth saxophone, and <laughs> wow. I feel like use a real saxophone. Wow. Double read, but but double read is that also the fact that like. Maybe it is like a little electronic tune sounding saxophone or something. But it's a it's a it's a human in the human world playing the saxophone, playing a, a human saxophone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that it should it should sound like a real saxophone. I get so it. They should I be ashamed it. of themselves. I, I noticed it's, it's it too. Inexcusable. I noticed it too. <laughs> uh, I I just want to quickly say I mean I feel like it is easy to underrate Jessica as a character because she Mm, feels mm. so much like she exists for the sort of eye candy of it and for sort of the running gag of why is she with this guy? Right. But so much of the plot is actually driven by her and, and she's a character that's constantly revealing new dimensions to herself in terms of you're constantly struggling to get a read on what her drive is and what, what her, her strategy is, but she's always sort of four steps ahead of everyone else. And I think they're so good about, I mean, Kathleen Turner's amazing in it. Uh, But I also feel like there's the thing where she knocks out Roger and Eddie takes that as proof that she's like actually trying to hurt Roger. 
And then he asked her why she did it. And she said, well, I want to knock him out so no one else could hurt him. Yeah. And it's that thing where, like, she acts more like a human than any other tune, enough that she feels closer to an equal to Eddie and that he's constantly kind of tempted by her sexually. But then there are these constant reminders that she still operates by totally upside down tune logic. Right. Um, the bullets as well. I wanted to shout out the bullets. I bullets are great. That was my favorite gag bullets. when I was a kid. And they um, also get such a hero's entrance. Like every new yeah. character gets like a movie star entrance. Which is, it's also that sort of thing of like these, these old, these old bullets that, that are, that get the, that get their screen time again. It's kind of, it's kind yeah. of, great. it's yeah. kind of touching. Right. Um, so let's play the box office game. Griffin. Let's play the box office game. Uh, guys, we're going to talk about the top five at the box office. The week this movie came out. Griffin's going to wow. try and guess. You guys can guess. As well, if you wish, of course, it came out. So July? the movie was a huge hit. Uh, yeah. Yeah, June, June 24th, yeah, okay. 1988. Uh, opened to $11 million and made 150, which is, you know, it's just not how things work anymore. And it was so, you know, it was a, it was a, right. I feel like it was a hit beyond whatever they imagined. Yeah, right? it was their highest grossing film in a really long time. And it totally yeah. revitalized Disney, both their live action and animation. A hundred percent. So huge. And then they would never take this kind of risk ever again. (laughs) I I went to see this movie opening weekend. uh, Really? uh, As a sleepover. A sleepover event. Perhaps my first ever sleepover. So Nick, you were like chaperoning a bunch of children on a sleepover? (laughs) All right. (laughs) I was a young boy. And I remember the movie being sold out. I remember it like we couldn't see it and we had to see our compromise movie. And the compromise movie I have in my head is possibly being one of the box office top five. But I don't, am, am I supposed to give hints? What am I? What are we? What do we do? I, I'm going to give you some hints. And if if any of these, okay. so Roger Rabbit number one, eleven million dollars. Mm-hmm. That's that's the number one movie. The number two movie is another big comedy of this year with a big hey, eleven star. million dollars. That's even bigger than the opening weekend of Tenet. <laughs> <laughs> it's huge. Exactly. Was, was 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 John Candy in the movie? John Candy is, oh, he is. Isn't, well, no, no, he's not in this movie. No, wait, I, I, I'm confusing it with another movie with this star. No, no, John is it, Candy. Is it Scrooged? Um, not Scrooged. Mm. Uh, it's not like, at this Scrooge point, he guess. is still a comedy star. Is it a Robin? No, but he's about to transition into mainstream stardom. I feel like we recently discussed this movie, Griffin. Eddie Murphy? Hanks. 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 It's a Hanks. Oh, it's not big. No, big is later. It is. It's big. It's big. It's wow. big. Yes. Wow. Big. Wow. Which has been hanging around for a month. You know, just wow. kicking ass wow. like a huge, huge hit. Yeah. Now this. Now this is crazy to me because that, like, in my head, I remember seeing Big as a kid and Who Framed Roger Rabbit. So this is like a big. This is a a, 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 a heavy year. summer movie. It's a big weekend. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, we t- we talked about it in our Back to the Future episode as a movie that should fundamentally not be able to handle its premise. Right. Right. Exactly. Yes. Another sort of high wire type. Yeah, that's right. That makes sense. Right. Um, big. So number two is big. I thought big might be the movie, uh, Nick, but apparently not. So no, it wasn't big. Number three at the box office is uh, one of those movies. Uh, it's a comedy with the actor you just named. Um me? Uh, Mitch, yes. Oh. Um, it's was an it John, Eddie? John, John, oh, oh. Great Outdoors. Great Outdoors. There wow. you go. Wow. wow. 
So Great Outdoors is one of the first movies I remember seeing in the theater. So this is so that maybe is just not right. But <laughs> well, but that makes sense. I mean, all these movies are coming out around the same time. I mean, Great Outdoors has been out for a few weeks. I have yeah. never seen The Great Outdoors. Do you no, guys have Great I, Outdoors I, takes? I, I loved it as a kid, and then a lot of people think it kind of sucks. But right. I, as a kid, I, I really and the raccoons are are like. The raccoons, which like I think if you were making the movie and the raccoons were inserted into it, like you'd hate the raccoons, but I loved it as a kid. Mm. Um, Annette um, Benning's film debut, The Great Outdoors. Wow. wow. No way. Her first movie. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? That's unbelievable. She's like famous like three years later. Like I feel like, you know what I mean? She's wow. like in the grifters yeah. right away after that. I also, I feel like Dan Aykroyd's career as a movie star is incredibly weird. <laughs> Because he he never really figured out what his leading man persona was, but he also abandoned doing characters pretty early on. Like he sort of went to playing everyman roles, but you're like, what is his energy? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Am I supposed to root for Dan Aykroyd or not? Like that's sort of the weird thing about him in the 80s. Like, is yeah. he the everyman? He was too focused on his vodka brand. Of course, Already. he didn't want to work about it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, he just right. dreamed he was of starting skulls. the distillation process. <laughs> He's the skull guy, right? Yeah, yeah. crystal yes. skull. Yeah, yes. Okay. All right, all right. Next movie. It was number one the previous week. It's taken a big dip compared to these the other you know comedies. I've, back in the day when comedies would just play weeks and weeks, basically making it's the taken same a big of money. dip. Who directed I mean, this movie? Judge Doom. <laughs> Griffin, that Griffin, was excellent. I loved it. That was really good. Thank you. Griff, I loved it. Thank you. I leaned all the way into my <laughs> webcam. That, that's your favorite punchline mode, just leaning all the way <laughs> yeah. into the camera. All right. This is one of those action, star, action star and funny man movies, right? Like, uh-oh. Mm. Like, this is, is a it, mismatch. Is it Red Heat? It's Red Heat. Wow. How, you, how did you do that? Schwarzenegger mm-hmm. and Belushi. My brain is wow. broken. Jim Belushi, of course. This is the only thing I can do. Wow, Griff, I'm impressed. You weren't even like another 48 hours first. You went straight to Red Heat and nailed it. I went straight to Red It was a feeling. Look, a lot of times it's a feeling, but it's like I have like a mental map. It's like there's a web in my head. And I think about like when things happen in relation to other movies and people's careers and events. You know, it's it's like everything's itemized this way. This 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 to me though is insane that it was number four. I mean, I, I can't believe that that movie was ever number four or was right. even number one. That's it had been number one the previous week. It had been number one insane. the previous Just week. Insane. I mean, Schwarzenegger's big at that point. Yeah, uh, that's true. Directed by Walter Hill, who made both Forty Eight Hours and Another Forty Eight Hours. So you were you weren't that far off, Nick. It's um, also like you look at like. Belushi and Aykroyd three and four at the box office people were like so unwilling to give up the 70s Saturday Night Live thing that they'll take a Belushi brother <laughs> I was yeah. about to say I mean wrong yeah. Belushi but right they're they're just like look if it's a Belushi sure that's my I'm point there. they're like oh, we don't yeah. even care any Belushi at this point please we're not ready to move on um I just love that it's also Schwarzenegger he's like a Soviet cop right or something right. he's yeah. like you know and he and he's in uniform and he has a gun and belushi has a cup of coffee instead of a gun even though i think he's mm. also a cop right like he yes. would have a gun <laughs> but he's like, like a chicago cop he loves eating right. a hot dog or some shit they'll just yeah. pull a cup of coffee on you all right number five griffin mm. it's a franchise that we have discussed so much during this lockdown over text message is it crocodile dundee but which one is it? Two? 
It's Crocodile Dundee 2. Wow. Wow. David yeah. and I have been talking about Crocodile Dundee and Paul Hogan's filmography a lot, despite the fact that still neither of us have seen any Crocodile Dundee movies. <laughs> I might have seen the first one on TV like when I was a kid. That's about it. I keep saying to David, like, fuck it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to watch all three Crocodile Dundees tonight. And I keep on not doing it. <laughs> uh, three, there, there was a big gap between two and three, but I watched one and two pretty obsessively as a kid. Really? It's the, right, it's the right. origin of the that's not a knife. This is a knife gag. Yes. I mean, I understand. There had to be a 13 year gap between two and three, though, because they had to take that long to figure out the new angle, which is that what if he went to Los Angeles? <laughs> I mean, that's that's not something you can just think about, like, you know, like, all right, like toss an idea ideas around like they had to really workshop that it's also it's just the phenomenon i'm so fascinated by of like him landing here this <sighs> movie being like this australian culture clash fish out of water movie and everyone being like oh my god the, australia's biggest comedy star they're finally giving him to us and australia was like he's like maybe in our top 10 <laughs> right take him <laughs> like we weren't trying to present this guy as being our represent he's fine griff, griff yeah. i have to read the tagline for crocodile dundee to you okay okay you, you have to hear this it's very important okay so the you know in the first poster for the first movie i believe he's like sort of pulling the skyscrapers apart he's like right. you know it's me uh, like it's tall grass Right, right, exactly. The second movie, he's he's standing atop the skyscrapers. He's like a giant. He's like 10 times bigger than the Empire State Building. He's got his knife. And it says, the tagline is, the world's favorite adventurer is back for more. Pause. Much more. That's it. That's that's the whole tagline. He's back for it, much more. Is the female lead on the poster with him for two? Yep, he's 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 okay. uh you know he's he's grabbing her. He's got him. He's got her in his arms. Because he marries her between one and two, and I feel like he very much front and centered her on the sequel. It's just wild for me that they were like, "What should the what should the premise of the sequel be?" And they're like, "I don't know. He's just he's, he's still Crocodile Dundee. Like that's <laughs> it. I, like you know, he's just still in New York." My my guess would have been. Big, great outdoors, Roger Rabbit all sold out, crikey, go see CD2. So, uh, <laughs> Nick, I, this, we're, we're done with the game, but what yeah. was your movie? Not not on that list, and, wow, and okay. perhaps, a, perhaps a bomb, or perhaps I'm misremembering The weekend. but the movie we saw instead of Who Framed Roger Rabbit was Willow. Wow. wow. Willow seems earlier to me. Maybe it had been in theaters for a while. You know, movies, a movie would come out in May and still be in theaters in August. It was a Please different let time. Willow be like 84. <laughs> Willow is in the top 10. It's number eight. Wow. wow. So, yes, Willow was hanging around. You've also got Bull Durham, a little too grown up for you, I would imagine. Yeah, of course. Um, you've got um, Big Business. Oh, my God. Best are popular over here. It's Crocodile Dundee. He's pissed off. <laughs> <laughs> Keep that in. Um, it was a food delivery. Uh, you, wait, what, what's big business? Big business is know. Lily Tomlin and Bette Midler. Oh, yeah, right. That's one of the Disney twins, movies that you were talking about. But there's right, also yes. another Lily Tomlin, Bette Midler. It's a very weird film. That movie's yeah. fun. So um, why do they fake a Crocodile Dundee sequel? Was there any point to that? Just to go back to that for a second. What? What, do you Wait, what? what are you talking you about? Remember, remember there was like a thing where they oh, were like, yes, oh, it, yeah. was, it was for fucking Australian tourism. They pretended oh. like they were rebooting Crocodile Dundee with Danny McBride, but it was actually, they were teasers for a Super Bowl commercial right. to promote it was Super Bowl Australian thing, right? tourism. 
just remake it if you're going to yeah. do it. Don't pretend. Was Paul Hogan involved in those at all? I think he wasn't at all. Crocties, more like. They were pretending that McBride. <laughs> they were pretending that McBride was playing Hogan's half American son, and then like every big Australian movie star was in those ads with him. Like Margot Robbie right. was in them. Wow. And Chris Hemsworth. Hemsworth. But I think Hogan right, right. wasn't. Can I share very very quickly the really funny Crocodile Dundee two anecdote? Please. I, I know we've gone long, but this is just such a good story that I think you guys would appreciate. Colin Quinn was hired to have like one line in Crocodile Dundee 2 as like an up and coming, you know, sort of like New York comedian. Uh, I, I His role is credited as onlooker in Mansion. I think he literally had one line and they gave him the script and he read it and he's like 24 or whatever. And he's like, that script is fucking garbage. You know what it could use? He could use like a sidekick who's like a streetwise New Yorker. And Colin <laughs> Quinn did a rewrite of Crocodile Dundee 2. And then when he went to set, handed them the script and was like, hey, I thought you guys might appreciate this. I feel like your movie could use. That's and so I, good. I think they maybe took away his line i think he's now wow. in the movie non-speaking wow. but it's one of the best movie star stories of just like like being a young actor and being like oh you know they'll appreciate if i rewrite the movie and make myself <laughs> the second lead <laughs> that's, that, that's more of a take than he's back for more much more i which mean is all they might have been right <laughs> right you know i want i anyway. would love to see that version yeah. Yeah, me too. That'd be way better. Uh yeah, Bull Durham, Big Business, Funny Farm, Willow, um, farm. and the Presidio. Funny Farm. Funny Farm, pretty Ooh. good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you got like you got Chase, Aykroyd, and a Belushi in the top ten. Like the, the yeah. shadow of 75 SNL lasted for a long time. Funny farm, I remember being on Siskel and Ebert's top ten list and me <laughs> wow. being as a kid being like, yes. I can't, I just, how did this happen? It's, it's, but it's a comedy. Those movies don't go on top 10 lists and like not understanding that sometimes a critic just, you know, likes the movie like that. You're right. Eber called it a miracle and Siskel said it was <laughs> the best Chevy Chase film of all time and compared it to like a Preston Sturgis movie. Yeah. Did they That's incredible. Both put it on their separate 10s? I believe so. That's my memory. Yes, they did. <laughs> and the wildest thing is like, it was a movie that got buried by like, big and crocodile dundee 2 and like you know roger rabbit you know like it was a movie that did not succeed at all like it was the end of chevy chase is a comedy big shot i feel like it is around I, i've been watching a lot of old siskel and ebert in quarantine as like a, 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 a one of the most relaxing shows out there it's like my version of i think what other people turn to uh, bob ross for um, but I watched this one where they were like, it was their movies of the year. They're like undersung hidden gems or something like that. And they called out this comedy that I had like never heard of. I'm, I'm forgetting what it even was now, but it had like a couple big actors in it. And it was a high premise comedy I'd never heard of. And they were like, this movie is so much better than it has any right to be. And it's clearly like the emergence of a major new comedy director. This director who wrote and directed it, the premise sounds like it's nothing special, but it's just the singer, not the song. He's really got a deft touch. And this movie is clearly showing you that this director is one to watch. And then I looked him up and his next film was Mac and Me. Wow. What's the movie? I've never even, well, you don't even. I'm going to figure it out while I'll we wrap up. up the show. Well, we're um, done. Yeah, you wrap it up. Yes. I'll, I'll, I'll find you there. 
got to send these guys on our merry way on their uh, their merry way. The Philadelphia Experiment is that the movie? No, no, maybe it's the one right before that. The yeah, Ice Pirates. Has, maybe I the ice I, pirate. maybe it was a couple. High Stuart risk. Raffle. I think that's hey, that, what that's it is. The guy. High risk. Yes, with like yes, Gregory yeah, Hines, James Brolin, James Brolin. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Um, yeah. Anyway, anyway, anyway. Right, Cleavon Little. It's a weird cast. Anthony Quinn. Anyway. Nick, Mitch, thank you so much for doing the show. What a delight. Thank you for Guys, having us. Guys, thanks for having Thanks for, for having us for such a great movie. Great, uh, such a, hey, what yeah, a great man. film. A- anytime you guys want a movie, you just let us know. You get first round pick. Uh, yep. You're the kings of podcasting. We've said it before, but uh, you, you guys, uh, Dave and I constantly talk about how you guys are the absolute best in the biz, and we crib so much from you guys. Uh, and by crib, I mean steal. Um, (laughs) but it's uh, truly honor. We want to do this for a long time. It's a bummer that, uh, you know, a pandemic is the thing that finally made uh, podcast crossovers happen. But also it's, it's one of the few silver linings I feel like of this whole thing is that we've, uh, gotten to be uh, text chain buddies and done these appearances. You guys came on our show. It was a delight. A couple of episodes, much beloved. We're thrilled to come back to, to, to yeah. return the favor here on your show. So, so fun. And everyone, get out of our Twitter mentions. We did each other's shows. Yeah. It's happened. Yeah, you never we did it. Okay, ask us we did the thing. Shit ever again. <laughs> <laughs> Stop bothering us with your engagement in the things we make. <laughs> and by the way, not proctologist. I forgot the joke already. I was trying to do the callback to the beginning. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> oh, all right. Man. All right. Let's wrap it up. Uh, thank you all for listening. Please remember to rate, review, subscribe. Thanks to Ange Fergudo for her help with the show and social media. Uh, go to our uh, uh, Shopify page for merch. Go to blankiesirad.com for some real nerdy shit. Uh, tune in next week for... Back to the Future Part 2, because this really is a miracle run. Uh, and uh, on our Patreon, uh, doing the uh, the Alien franchise commentaries. Wow. Uh, and, as always, Who Framed Roger Rabbit gets five forks. Hey. Five forks. Five forks. Platinum <laughs> Play Club, right? Right? 100%. Yeah. Platinum yeah. Film Club. Yeah. For sure. Platinum Wager, Film Club. Um, I think four and a half forks. <laughs> Wager. <laughs> The saxophone wasn't real. It was synth. <laughs> yeah, you got to dock it for that. I take it back. Absolutely. <laughs>